Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start, if you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. I'm Sam Moores, and with us this week, we have Tom Callow. Hello. Hi, Sam. Pleased to be here. Hello. Um, can you tell the audience and listeners a little bit about sort of who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, so, as you say, my name is Tom Callow. I'm currently the head of corporate communications for a company called My Energy. We're a British um, eco-smart, we call it eco-smart home technology company. So we make um, energy smart products for the home, including an EV charger, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but my background is really in, in automotive, so hence, uh, I guess, the car podcast. Um, you know, it's I spent a long time working in automotive public relations agency. I've worked for a big automotive services business called Cox Automotive, um, and I've worked, um, I guess, for the last 10 years off and on in, in the electric vehicle sector, electric vehicle charging. So that's become a bit of a, a mastermind specialist subject, I guess. Yeah, I think I probably came across you on Twitter for the first time, I don't know, ages ago, on ch- chiming in on various automotive topics over the time. And, and um, I have a twin brother, which which often is the reason people name me. <laughs> and and well. you have a brother, yes, who I've also come across. Um, so I, I guess one of the things, let's, let's, let's roll back a bit. Um, you know, how did you, how did you get into all this? You've obviously been into cars for a while, but you've sort of diverged. Talk me through it. So, so I, uh, I guess from a very young age, I was always interested in cars. I don't, I've never called myself a, a petrol head, and it's not because I, it's not because I don't like petrol-powered cars or anything like that. But I always had more of fascination with cars as a kind of a product and the, mm-hmm. and the motor industry as a whole, I guess. Um, and there's a famous story uh, that my mum will tell about my brother and I being in a in a buggy when we were being pushed up to collect my older sister from school, and. Bearing in mind we were still at the age of being a buggy, one of us, uh, I'll claim it was me, uh, but one of us um, pointed out, I think, that like the, the hubcaps on a, I don't know, whatever at the time, a, a, you know, 
um, a Ford Fiesta were Vauxhall hubcaps. And we like asked our mum why <laughs> there were Vauxhall hubcaps on a Ford and she just didn't know, obviously. Um, anyway, so there, there's sort of been, always been a car interest. I so, don't know why from a young age. And I think she said that we used to, she used to read the, the make and model of the cars on the way up to the, the schools, like a thing to do to pass the time. Um, I, I guess it was probably at school when I, uh, the reason I'm in this sector, I think is probably that, um, as I say, I was always passionate about cars and, and driving bluntly. And, you know, I was one of these people that, that learned to drive pretty much as quickly as I could. Um, and I sort of learned, I learned in a, in a Range Rover in a field when I was 14, actually, but, um, not my Range Rover, not my field, I should say. Um, <laughs> not, not very legal though. Um, and, but I just sort of, I don't know what it was actually that made me realize this, but when I was at, at secondary school, I, I came to the conclusion that this thing that I loved was a problem for the environment. Basically, mm-hmm. you know, we couldn't sustain it in the current way. And that, you know, maybe it was studying geography or whatever, but it, it kind of made me a bit sad, bluntly. And I thought, well, I don't want to not drive. I don't want to not have cars around when I'm older. So how do we, is there a way we get to a place where we can still have cars, but actually they're not this sort of terrible burden on 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 the climate. Um, so that really drove my interest in in alternative fuels, I guess, and and, and doing mm-hmm. things in a different way. So I think I I wrote a dissertation when I was well, four thousand word dissertation, not very long one, um, when I was seventeen about the the storage of hydrogen in passenger cars and okay. whether that was kind of going to be an option. Um, and yeah, it just got fascinating the topic really. Um, so I've always loved writing, always loved cars, and um, I think a, a young age wants to be a motoring journalist told my teachers that to which they bristled and said don't be stupid go and do something academic don't 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 do vocation you know don't go off to university and study journalism you know go off and study some sort of academic degree so so I did sort of slightly begrudgingly um and when I finished university uh, <laughs> I went to work for an automotive public relations agency so I wasn't a million miles away and and um having wanted to be a motoring journalist I basically met some of the let's say older school motoring, motoring yeah. journalists and decided that I didn't want to be a motoring journalist having met <laughs> Um, and, um, I think there's an old guards that are very different from the, the kind of amazing new crop, not new now, but younger crop of, you know, uh, people who, people who love their job and people who see, you know, see themselves having the best job ever. I think there was unfortunately a generation where there was a huge sense of entitlement and having met those people, I just thought, crikey, I really don't want to turn into someone that, you know, gets sort of snobby when they don't turn left, when they walk on an airplane, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so uh, so yeah, and I met some great people in public relations and, and thought, well, this is, this is a more positive, um, kind of, uh, I don't know, less cynical kind of career option maybe. Um, and spent seven years in a public relations agency working with pretty much every automotive company you can imagine, sort of lots on the kind of widget maker side, lots on the tech, tech side, tier ones, um, but also some, some car manufacturers as well. So just got, it just allowed me to explore that fascination with the motor industry really from, you know, wiper blades and spark plugs to, you know, helping to, do sort of first test drives and some sort of fairly innovative electric cars. Yeah. Um, I think one of my first jobs was the launch of a, a converted 911, actually, that was made by Ruff, or Roos, sorry. Um, so um, a Lois came over, uh, and and we actually launched it at the SMMT. I say we launched it. We did a test drive with about 20 journalists at the SMMT, which was at um, Forbes House over in Halkin Street in London at that time. Yeah. And I, I, I lay claim to ruining the front lawn about a week before someone was meant to be having a wedding there because we basically put this really heavy duty matting down on the front lawn at Forbes house and had this two ton electric 911 squashing electric 911. They did an electric 911 conversion. Yeah. I mean, it was a one-off. It was a one-off. It was called the, it's called the E-Ruff or the E-Ruff. 
Okay. Um, it was black thing, really lovely, but but heavy, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, so I ruined the front lawn, front lawn at um, Forbes House. And also, I think at one point was Ken Gibson came along and he drove it, and they they thought they were going to have another person, I think, on the shoot. And I ended up having to drive his long-termer Civic Type R around Belgravia with the boot open with a photographer, whose name I'm afraid I can't remember, hanging out of the boot, shooting pictures of Ken Gibson driving around Belgravia <laughs> around, all the, around all the embassies where all with these all armed the police, guards yeah. were sort of like eyeing me up, like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I thought, well, I think you're more bothered about defending the embassy than like figuring out whether I'm breaking well, any laws by doing this. Are, they're not allowed... No, they might be. I, I don't think they're really allowed to move. No, so, I don't think they are. So I think even if I was doing something wrong, I think they just had to stand there and be sort of begrudgingly annoyed about it. Yeah. Um, but I that know. was one of my earliest, earliest memories of PR, basically, was <laughs> I felt like I met, I'd made the right move by driving a Civic Type R around Belgravia with a boot open and a photographer hanging out. Yeah. It's interesting. Something you said early on is you don't like to be branded a, a petrol head. Um, I... I had to do, I did some work with someone recently and they, they were like, they wanted me to talk about their car and do some stuff and whatever. And they were like, you know, you're a petrol head. And I was like, hmm. And this was a hybrid we were looking at. And they were like, we want to talk to you about hybrids and stuff. And I was like, well, I don't know whether I am a petrol head. Like, I, I don't think that's the right word anymore. Like, I think, like, car enthusiast is probably better for a lot of people now. It's almost... Being a petrol head says to me that you're this person that's sort of religiously stuck in the yeah. petrol only is the only solution. Nothing else is possible. And I'm sure you must butt up against quite a lot of people on a daily basis who are in that kind of camp of just rage. It, it feels like there's just rage that like petrol cars are going to be, EVs must be the devil any other solution must be horrific and like it's difficult to sort of take on new information it's a it's a funny one yeah it's a it's just i mean it's basically it's a global change management process um and it's it's what you always come again come up against in any change management where there are always people that don't like change and that's fine in that that's a natural human reaction to have so i don't begrudge them for that but it's it is about kind of making sure you can kind of and to use the horrible analogy, kind of take them on that journey. Um, yeah, one of the best lessons, I know it's a really simple thing, one of the best lessons one of my old bosses said was, you know, change is constant. You've in any in any role, in any job in life generally, you should always expect change because change is constant. And if you if you assume that nothing will ever change, that's when the nasty surprises will happen because you'll get yeah. blindsided by it. So I've always lived, you know, I guess really more recently with that mentality that stuff will always change, stuff will always move around. And actually as long as you understand that and it doesn't freak you out, I think that's sort of generally a good way to go go about living. Um, but yeah, I, I, I guess it's it's a weird term, isn't it? Because no, nobody, oh well, I mean, there might be some um, petrol chemists, I don't know, in, in uh, oil and gas companies that really love petrol, but no one I've met who's a car enthusiast loves petrol, loves petroleum per se. Yeah. I know a few people think it smells nice. I'm sure I was in one of these, I'm sure <laughs> I had that weird thing when I was a kid, I thought, oh, petrol's it's weirdly nice smell. Um, but, you know, no one really loves petrol and no one loves the, the, the oily stuff you shove in the, the tank. It's more, it's more the de- what, that, what that derives, right? It's the experience that you get from a vehicle using that substance in a combustion process. And, and actually, 
the more you scratch the surface and you get down to the, the nub of it, you say to people, what is it that you actually kind of will miss? What is it that you can't let go of? And a lot of the time people go, I, the noise, I can't, I can't, yeah. do, can't live without the noise. And then you go, but, but A, modern internal combustion engine cars are very quiet anyway, right? I mean, one of my biggest disappointments is like, if you go to someone like Goodwood, you go to Festival Speed, the best noisiest runs are not the modern supercar run, right? The yeah, best yeah, noisiest yeah. runs are all the old stuff when the like Beast of Turin goes up the hill or whatever. When all the modern supercars go up, they all kind of sound whooshy, same kind of, you know, yeah. downsized internal combustion. It's all a bit, so what? Um, and, you know, it's the same if you, and it's for very good reasons, obviously, that they've all been engineered to an inch of their life to be quite quiet. Um, so they don't really make much noise anyway, unless you absolutely spank them. Um, and if you do the same in electric vehicles, they, they also make a noise. It's different noise, but it's, it's you know, you, you can, I think you can sort of probably sort of learn to like it, if not love it. Um, but it's the noise is a big thing. Um, I think people also like the manual kind of intervention of, you know, of, of a lot of internal combustion engines. But again, you know, with slippage towards, you know, um, kind of automated um, gearboxes and, and you know, DSGs or whatever, you know, people again have, have kind of changed their mindsets around, do I need a stick? Do I need stick shift? Yeah. Like, do I need a, a manual transmission or can I actually, can I, do I, and more and more, you know, I see more and more journalists over the years kind of accept that actually, do you know what? It's faster. It's better. I just, actually, it's fine. I can live without it. And I think it's just that, again, it's just change management. It's, it's people having lived with something for best part of a century, suddenly going, oh, maybe I don't need it to be the same as it always was. Um, so yeah, I don't, I mean, there are people who have this weird pathological hatred of electric vehicles, but most people are not that way inclined. Most people I meet are skeptical, which is fine. No problem with skepticism. They are anxious again fine no problem with anxiety because it is a change and you need to be educated about it and you need to have knowledge about it um but as i say it's a it's a tiny minority who have this weird vociferous kind of like um hatred if you like which is which is very strange and um and to be honest that very very small minority are like i almost liken them to kind of the nra in the us it's, yeah. it's that level of kind of clinging to your gun type thing where there's no rationality to it whatsoever. You know, you're not about to be in the government is not about to rise up and, 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 and like come out, come out against you all with guns. There's not going to be a government uprising. You're not about to get invaded by aliens. You don't need an, a, an automatic rifle in your, in your yeah. shed. Like you just don't need it. Um, and it's that level of, of kind of willful, um, kind of ignorance that, that, that I think is, is there in some small circles, but it is the vast minority, you know, yeah, it is. It is an an interesting one. And you just, I think, being in the sort of automotive kind of journalisty, whatever sort of space ish, you just come you come across those people like vocally quite a lot. Um, and I think one thing I found the more so I got a an E two hundred eight on a lease, which actually goes back on Friday, um, two years ago. And it was, uh, like, I, I, I think I, a bit like you, over the last, I don't know, five years, 10 years, I've started thinking more about the environment and the future. And I've now got a kid and, and that sort of stuff. And, like, I love cars. I love driving. I love design. I love a V12. I love an, ex an awesome experience. Um, but then in the back of my mind, I do have this like, 
okay. Air quality. Air quality is a huge one for me at the moment. Um, I live in London and the air mm. quality is not good. And it's, it's, it's all right where I am, but it's really bad in other areas. Um, and that I look at and go, right, what, what is the solution? And the solution for that, the only solution for that really is electric vehicles. Um, you, people would talk about using synthetic fuels and whatever, but they still, it's still basically kind of like a petrol substance that kicks out a lot of rubbish when you burn it. Yep. Um, so that, that sort of, I thought, okay, maybe I shouldn't be driving a V12 around town. Maybe I should have an EV for sort of shorter journeys and then long journeys. I'm not going to, well, I'm not going to put myself out there in the sense of testing infrastructure and really go to that crazy level of planning and whatnot to drive all my long distances in an EV. So I got, got an ET08. And it was a really interesting experience. I don't know, do you remember the first like couple of weeks of, of your EV journey? Um, I think, I mean, I, so I guess the first time I drove an electric car was probably in something like 2009. I don't know. Um, so, but, but, so, so I guess I had experience of them but not living with them. And I think mm. the first time I properly lived with one for like a week or more um, was probably in about 2013, 14. So weirdly, we were doing a bit of PR for BYD. I mean, yeah. BYD, BYD <laughs> 10 years ago funny. was totally rec- unrecognizable in terms of the vehicle type, right, from where yeah. you are now. I mean, it was a car called the E6, if you want to look that up. And I, we, um, I sort of, weirdly, although I was in a public relations role, we'd kind of ended up assisting on kind of brokering a deal between what was then, uh, well, BYD basically, and a company called Green Tomato Cars at the time. This is all in public domain. I'm not, not revealing any secrets. And um, we did, we did. I won't say who. We did approach a different private hire company, and um, the founder basically said climate change isn't isn't real. So that was a, a short conversation. <laughs> um, but the uh, Green Tomato, very open minded company. They um, they they really really sort of love the concept of going electric. Um, still in contact with a couple of the founders from there today, sort of in terms of the, the, the team that were behind it. Um, and we brought initially, we sort of managed to get a deal where they brought, I think, 50 over, but it just didn't work because the infrastructure at the end of the day for yeah. them. So it didn't it kind of fell apart and the cars ended up in Uber fleets and stuff. But I had this car for about a week um, and I demonstrated it around to get to my old secondary school. I uh, did a chat with some students there to get to my mum's primary school. Got primary school kids excited about electric cars, um, drove it up and down you know, around the UK a little bit, um, did a lap of the M25. So we did, a, <laughs> we did an all up. Um, I know Top Gear just did the, uh, the 24 hours of the M25. Yeah. Um, we, I did a, a full circumnavigation in the M25 from Park Royal over in West London. So we drove out from Park Royal all around the M25 and back to the sort of depot on Park Royal, which I think worked out to about 144 miles in total. What was the um, what was the range on that car? Well, uh, uh, officially, I think it was 186. I'm being yeah, a real nerd yeah. now. I think you it was about 186. Like on the edge. It, I, I had, so I had, I, I've always been a bit of a maverick with electric cars and I have run out of range twice as well. Um, but, um, I like running them down cause I, I, I kind of want to see what they can do. So I don't, I'm yeah. not these people that goes below 20% and then freaks out and goes for charging point. I like to run them down sort of like zero or 1% if I can. But I had, I got back to Park Royal with one mile of range remaining and I had these four, no, we were four up actually, not five. So there's three, three Chinese guys from BYD in the car with me who were, it was, it was a hot summer day, but they were sweating. They were like, yeah. they were really panicking that we were going to, we were going to, you know, run this car out in the middle of <laughs> the A40 or whatever. Um, 
but we did, we made it and it was, you know, it was 24 degrees summer day. The aircon was on full, as I say, all around the N25. And when I wasn't going at 50 miles an hour, we were doing 70 miles an hour speeds pretty much all the way around, right? We yeah. were going as fast as we could, you know, within legal limits to, to show the car could do it. Um, but that wasn't bad because that was a, that was a 63 kilowatt battery. Um, and as I say, the, the, the range on it was 186 miles, something like that as a, as an official cycle. And we got that 145 out of it. So Compared to today's EVs, that's, that's crap. My, my e-Nero has the same size battery, which I used to have, um, and that could do double that range, yeah. 280 miles, no problem. So so range has definitely improved. But the um, the E6 was, it was fascinating to live with it. And the, the, the memory I have, apart from the interesting N25 drive, was um, I had, the biggest the biggest memory I have from, from that week with it was I had to, I had to plan journeys around where I was going to charge the car, right? That was yeah. the key thing. So firstly, it didn't have a home charge. I didn't have a three-pin plug with it because it was a Chinese imported vehicle. There was no, I had no three-pin three pin charger for it. I yeah. could have probably bought one actually at the time, but I didn't think about doing that. So I had no way of charging it at my house. So I had to rely on public charging. And every time I was thinking about going somewhere, I had to think, hang on, I need to go somewhere first to charge it. Then I need to go to the plate. And how am I going to do all of yeah. that? Whereas now I just don't do any of that. I don't have to think, hang on, I've got to draw. And, and we're talking about, I was with my parents at the time down in Kent and, and I was having, so I had to drive from Northwest Kent down the A2, down the A2 basically to, I think Maidstone or something to the services, turn, charge there, turn around and come back up the A2. It was just crazy. Yeah. You know, it was, a, it was a daft way to have to live. Um, but thankfully we're some way beyond that now, I guess. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, things have moved on. Okay. One of the things that you, you just mentioned, which, I, I still I never want to do it is running to zero. Like when so, have you done it? And so what did you do? So the, 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 the most important thing I'll say about this is that the reason someone's going to say, you know, I ran out of range because the charging station didn't work, but there's enough charges out there now that the, the reason, the reason you run out of range, if you run out of range today, as I've done twice, um, it's the same reason people run out of petrol and petrol diesel yeah. is that basically they're reckless. Yeah. Reckless. There's no. There's no logical reason why you should ever run out of fuel, and really, there's no logical reason why you should ever run out of electric electric range in your EV, given the number of charge points that are around. So it's 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 a level of recklessness. It's a level of driving past charging stations that you could have stopped at because you think you can make it, or you're not paying attention to the range readout, or whatever. That's that's the yeah. reason. So the first time was a Nissan Leaf. I was driving back from Luton, where we were, where I worked at the time, driving back to Surrey, and. I basically had just about enough in the, in the battery. Um, and yeah, I drove past, I don't know, 25 rapid chargers on the way, various points. And I was like, I can make it, I can make it, I can make it. And it got to the point where, and the leaf as a maverick kind of likes to run the car down, the leaf annoyed me a bit because it, once it goes below about, I think it's about 10 miles of range or 5%. I can't remember what, what it is. The, the display just cuts out. Oh. So that when you're in the low numbers, you have no idea what the car has in the tank. Still, <laughs> it just goes to like a blank screen. Yeah. So like, well, I've got three miles left. Do I have three miles of range? Do I have four miles? Do I have two miles? I don't know. Um, anyway, so it went into what's called turtle mode. So it has a little turtle that comes up that says you're basically limping now. Um, so I got the M25, sort of went around some back streets towards this charge point that I knew I could get to, or I thought I could get to, and I ended up about a mile short of it, um, just pulled up at the side of the road and called this an assistance. And the time between me running out of range and being at the charging point charging again was 45 minutes which oh, wow. really wasn't an issue. And I was like, actually, if this is the, the extent of it, then so be it. Um, and the other time was on the way back down the A1 again. I thought I had enough range to reach charge point that I wanted to get to, but 
again, I, I passed like 16, 17 rapid charges on the A1 that I could have stopped at, pushing, pushing, pushing it, um, and ran out on the A1. And I, I, I was stopped for quite a long that time, I won't say how long, but, um, but that's it's experience. I'm not really again now, but that's just, yeah. you know, in both in both instances, the, the issue was not was definitely not a lack of infrastructure. As I say, in both cases, there were at least like at least a dozen, if not two dozen, charges I could have stopped at, and my journey would have been delayed by like five minutes to yeah. do that little mini stop to get an extra ten <laughs> miles. Like it would it wouldn't have killed me to do it, but I was just being an idiot. So yes, I've done it. It wasn't the second time was a lot less pleasant than the first time, um, but. In both cases, I was reckless. I can't, you know, the, the car wasn't the fault. The infrastructure wasn't the fault. It was me basically chancing it and getting it wrong, basically. And and what happens in that? Because I, I heard stories, I've not heard any recently, but of the recovery situation. Okay, you could call your recovery person and go, yeah. I've run out of juice. Um, I, I heard previously that certain cars, it was a problem moving them. So um, basically, the most operators will put you on a flatbed um, because you are effectively, if you're even in neutral, you're 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 moving motors, right? You can't really freewheel it. Um, the alternative to that is I can't remember which. I'm not going to say the name because I'll get it wrong and I'll get in trouble. One of the breakdown operators has, I think it's the AA, has a um, like a freewheeling hub that they can take off, so they could take off like the rear wheels of an EV, for example, uh. put on this freewheeling hub. That, that turns it into freewheeling mode, if you like. doesn't affect the motor. So there's that option without doing a flatbed. Um, it, it's it's not going to be an issue in my mind. I mean, fundamentally, if you think about the number of breakdowns there are going to be, logically, there should be way fewer breakdowns with electric cars because they have far, far fewer moving parts. Yeah. So actually, um, yeah, it's just I just don't think it's going to be an issue. Um, the number, as far as I know, the number of people who are, Bearing in mind the number of electric cars is going up, there's actually been a downturn in the number of people running out of range. Probably because A, the infrastructure is improving, less B, like you. <laughs> yeah, less people like me, longer range electric vehicles, right? And people learning yeah. to li- learning, you know, learning the, the ropes a bit more. Um, you know, manufacturers, some some of them, some of them are getting a bit better with their range estimations, some aren't. But um, yeah, as I say, I mean, it's it's either very likely at the beginning of ownership when you, I mean, I think the beginning of ownership and I used to look at, I've looked at probably more public charging data than anyone else in the country, but, um, and home charging data probably as well. But at the beginning of electric vehicle ownership, what we saw is when people first, if in my old company, we were looking at home chargers and we, we saw home chargers that were going in actually public charge as well. So people who'd signed up for public charging kind of account over and people had a home charger and, what you always saw was at the beginning of the journey, if you like. So immediately after getting a home charger, immediately after sort of signing up public charging, people were charging very frequently. So they were doing small yeah. charges very often because they were anxious. Yeah. And actually, the longer you you, you take that out, you know, over 12 months, over six months, people start to charge less off, less frequently, but the bigger charges. So you can see in the data, people are actually trusting the electric vehicle more and going, right, I can actually run this down more. I can do bigger charge. I don't need to charge every day. I can charge every week, whatever. And that's how that's how it typically goes. But I mean, you know, I've done like twenty six thousand miles in my in the current electric car I've got, and I just, I basically just, I was being a bit too trusting in it in a sense. Um, but I was, as I say, I was mostly being reckless. Um, but you know, it's not a. If you run out of range, you run out of range the same reason you run out of fuel. It's it shouldn't be possible. It shouldn't be something that you yeah. do if you like by accident. You you'd have to have missed a lot of charging points to do it, in my view. 
um, you know, even in quite remote areas, you've, you've usually got, you know, you're within miles of a public charger, typically, not always, but typically. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and of course, as a last resort, you know, if you're carrying your, your three pin last yeah. resort charger, um, if you stop somewhere with electricity, the chances are you can get, okay, you'd, you'd have a significant delay to get any kind of decent range, but um, that's it. But that's the beauty of electricity is it's kind of, it's kind of everywhere. You can't unfold a little solar panel. Put it on your roof. <laughs> you, you, could, you could. You'd be waiting a very long time. You can. You can. There's a, there's a company that's doing sort of a mobile battery packs that are designed for um, kind of an urban situation, predominantly where you would sort of um, maybe have a sort of thirty miles of range in a little mini battery that you basically go out, plug into your car at night time, like a suitcase, and then it charges on the street. You take it back inside in the morning to charge it up again. You drive off and do your daily commute. I, Quite an innovative little company. I saw but. that. I saw that product. And I, I can't remember what size the battery pack is, but it, it's it's sort of small wheelie suitcase size. Yeah. Now, that's not a very big battery. That's a tiny battery in comparison yeah. to a car. Charging your car like that, surely... I just I just looked at it and went, why would you do that? Because you're just not going to get any range out of it. Well, I think it's, it's really designed... Well, there's, there's a few applications it's de- designed for, I think. Um, one is, I guess, the emergency kind of thing. Like, I, if, I, if yep. I'd had that, I would have been played for again 45 sense. minutes. Um, I think it is for, the, for someone that does a very predictable short range every day. If they don't want to go to a public charge point to do those, that charging and they live on the street and they can't have home charge, um, it's quite an interesting idea as to yeah. how they could do their daily mileage, basically. I mean, yeah. it, it was about a six kilowatt hour pack, I think it's comes with zip charge. Um, and anyway, I mean, my view on this is basically we have to kind of look at all the options in the toolbox, like a, a little bit, no idea is a bad idea. Um, one of the things that we're really interested in, and I'm personally really interested in, is this idea of uh, of what we call through street charging. So, um, you know, there was a great Wattcar survey the other day that said, I think sort of 70 Five percent, something like that. Less than twenty percent of drivers would consider switching if they couldn't get a home charger. Now, about estimates vary, but something like forty odd percent of people won't be able to get a home charger. Well, won't be able to park off street. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So let's say 40 45 percent people won't be able to park off street, and therefore won't naturally be able to get a home charger. And even within the people that can, some of those people have to grapple with landlords and everything else. Yeah. Um, but for people who park on the street outside their home, you know, even if they park outside their house twice a week, not seven days a week, um, you know, we're looking at the sort of solution where you could potentially have some kind of gully yeah. that is that is not going to harm the accessibility of people using the pavement for walking or buggies or someone who's got a, a, a walking stick or, or mobility impairment, whatever. Um, and you're able to run a cable through that somehow from the property. So you, ben- you get all the benefits of home charging. So you get the benefit of cheap electricity overnight on a tariff, a time of use tariff. You get the benefit of solar panels and, and, and charging from renewables if you want to, um, but you can park. You can actually do it on your, you know, on outside your home rather than having to drive, you know, a mile to the nearest charge point. Um, that's a really interesting idea. There's various councils that are trying that now. Um, there's not so many in London. Uh, it's mostly ones outside London. So sort of Milton Keynes. Um, I think Oxford's done some. Uh, Bath and North East Somerset's doing some now, some trials. Because um, I think local authorities are realising actually that if they can enable this work, a bit like a drop curb, you know, actually they can kind of keep their hands out of it. They can say, you know yeah. what, as a local authority, do we really want to have loads of contracts for like on-street charging infrastructure with loads of different people and five-year maintenance agreements on them? And are they going to go wrong in 10? You know, what happens when the com- if the company goes bust in 10 years? What happens? Actually, if they just say, hang on a minute, if we just enable people to do it in their own homes we can basically just stop 
we can we can sort of stop putting new stuff on the pavement and um it actually speeds things up because people mm. then it's on the owners on the consumer to sort themselves out all we've got to do is a relatively simple little gully so there's um there's permitted development for that kind of thing happening in scotland so that's quite interesting as a solution i think is the idea of, of home home charging for people that currently aren't in that home charging um yeah. sort of venn diagram that's that's an interesting kind of uh solution that we're looking at maybe. a slight i don't know what i just thought of a slight spin on that would be because we, we all see these cables that you know people i've done it yeah. I feel like a lot of people have done it and you see it all the time. Someone's running a cable out of the kitchen window, across the pavement, blocking people, people trip over it or whatever. Um, I, I presume there's a sorry If you could have gullies and whatnot and and the ones, the charges that are built into lampposts, I think that's great. Like that, that makes sense. Like if we can do that, you've highlighted some possible issues in the future with things like that. But if, if a bunch of houses have a home charger on the wall on the outside of the house, you could have a system where that is rent outable. Yeah, absolutely. It's already happening. So the one of the companies that's doing this in Milton Keynes, for example, is a company called Curbo Charge, and they have a platform where exactly that happens. So you get your gully, you have a charger, and the idea is that you can then use the platform to uh, share that with neighbours. So if you can park outside your house twice a week, that's probably that might be enough for your requirements. If your neighbour can park outside twice a week, that's enough for theirs. So you almost end up being able to charge, let's say, three or four households' cars from one supply, yeah. and obviously the payments are all reconciled so that you're not paying for everyone else's <laughs> driving, which wouldn't be very fair. Um, but yeah, that's already happening. It's, in terms of that sort of that's a solution for the three street gully. It's already happening at some kind of scale in in off street home charging already. So there's a company called Co Charger. It's probably the the one that's um, that's best known, which is doing what it's called community charging, where you know it's it's like the old um, park at my house, you know, ju- yeah. you know, sort of option, right? Where where people kind of rent out their driveway for a I don't know near Twickenham if someone wants to go and watch rugby. It's the same thing of you know you're driving to Bristol, you're going to go somewhere, and actually someone's got a charger on their driveway that's a mile a mile away from where you're going or half a mile or whatever. You think well, actually, I'll just go and pay to park on their drive and charge for the day, and that means my charging sorted out because I know. If I pay for that, you also know if you've booked it, it's going to be there. Whereas if yeah. you're heading for a public charge point and there's only one of them, well, by the time you get there, it, someone else might be using it, right? So that's the other challenge, I guess, with if you don't have enough public charging infrastructure, that's a that's benefit. So again, we're like we're going to need all the tools in the toolbox. So you know, rapid notes, rapid charging isn't going to be the solution for everyone. On street charging is not going to be the solution for everyone. Community charging isn't going to be the solution for everyone. But if you sort of like aggregate all the technologies, that's how you get the the full sort of pie, yeah. if you like, and I think that's also that's also one of the thick struggles people have in understanding the infrastructure landscape is that because we have this homogenous infrastructure of petrol and diesel, you know, if you fill up petrol and diesel, you have to go to this thing called a forecourt, and yeah. you have to put this liquid in your car from either a green pump or a black pump, um, you know, because all the LPG ones being closed now, um, and it, it's basically the same experience for everyone, regardless of whether you're a high mileage driver, low mileage driver, luxury car driver. Whether you've yeah. got a driveway doesn't matter because you, you can't fill up with petrol at home. So people sort of struggle because they think, well, if we've got this homogenous infrastructure for petrol and diesel, what is the homogenous infrastructure for EVs? And the answer is there isn't one. There is no homogenous infrastructure for EVs. It's going to be like you literally will live next door to someone who will charge in a completely different way from you in many cases. Yeah. And that's that's fine. But I think people get a bit worried about it because they go, well, my neighbor can't do what I can do. And you go, okay, so what? You know, if they can charge at work, that might be their that might be their main charger. If they can charge at work, for example. Yeah, and lots of people 
you know, your cars either, for most most people that are driving a lot, they unless they're just on the road, they're either, the car's either at home or it's at work, of which yeah. case it's probably there for a long time. So yeah. if you can't charge at home, but you can charge at work, you're pretty, you're solved. Like, yeah. you're, you're, I mean, no the, the, the hardest, like the passenger car market is not the hardest market to, to solve for electrification. The hardest markets to crack are, and obviously a lot of these are already being done, are things like taxis, right? So a lot of black yeah. cabs, and a lot of black cabs are actually shared. So um, a lot of black cabs, not like Ubers, for example, well, Ubers to some extent, but black cabs, in many cases, you'll have drivers doing, splitting them, you know, in two shifts a day. So you'll have yeah. driver one who gets the car for the daytime shift and then driver two takes it for the nighttime shift. So that car is literally in pretty much 24-7 operation. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay, it has some downtime. It has some five, 10-minute breaks. But those drivers are trying to are trying to eke every minute of use out of that yeah. vehicle. They're, they're the challenge to electrify because when you're looking for when when's the time opportunity to charge that car, that, that vehicle, it gets tricky. For passenger cars, it should be a doddle, right? Because we know that they spend 90% of their lives doing nothing. So if, yeah. if a car is doing nothing, it's a great time to charge it, whether it's at work, at home, you know, at a gym, whatever. But if it's, if it's, if it's parked and doing nothing, let's charge it basically, or let's look at whether we can charge it. Um, the vehicles that don't spend many much time parked, they're more of the challenge. Um, you know, that's why I think, yeah, that's why I'm, I mean, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, an electric, um, absolutist. I think, you know, I don't think hydrogen passenger cars make much sense. But actually, if you look at 44 tonners that come into the port, you know, from Calais to Dover and basically want to do about 1,200 miles on a tank and go back to France again and not fill up, you're like, well, if that's their model today, can we electrify them okay? Can we electrify them fairly easily? I know they have to take breaks every kind of four hours over, but can we electrify them is maybe hydrogen the answer for really heavy trucks? I don't, I don't know that, the answer to that question. Um, but I do, I, 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 I scratch my head a bit more when I look at things like 44 tonners and say, could that really be electrified at scale? I know there's lots of companies doing, uh, trialing those and, and doing small fleets at the moment, but is that going to work for all of the applications? I'm not sure. Yeah, there's always going to be, isn't it? It's, it's this sort of situation where you're like, you know, you've got the whole the whole of the world and all of the, the infrastructure and whatnot and passenger cars is a chunk of it, but it's, and that's probably one of the easiest. It's one of the easiest ones to electrify and to do the others, it's going to take time, technology and whether electricity ends up being the ultimate situation. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's just, can we get to the least amount of sort of emissions and whatnot as possible? And ultimately, you know, we'll end up, hopefully with tankers not cruising around on bunker fuel at some point in time. But when we can change that stuff, don't know. Um, But at the same time, you know, you've got to, we've we've got to move forward. Um, Yeah. And I mean, unless you, I mean, I don't, again, I've not, I mean, there are people that sort of, there are people that dispute the fact that there's any kind of um, urgency around tackling, um, emissions right and tackling environmental pollution etc and i think it's very difficult to kind of you know create a constructive dialogue with a lot of those people sometimes but assuming you're in the vast majority that do you think we need to take some kind of action you know if you look at the big pie chart and go right where are the problems where are the big the big emission hotspots that's as a why as a company we're focused on those two areas really is one is transport and if you look at transport it's road transport 
we obviously know aviation is kind of out of, out of scope. It's incredibly difficult to kind of work out whether that plane's pollution happened in the UK or in France. But if you look at road transport, you know, the biggest, they're not the most polluting vehicle on a per vehicle basis, but the biggest chunk of emissions are obviously coming from private cars. So again, getting rid of the emissions from those is, is taking away a big chunk of the pie chart. That's not to say that we're saying that the private we're not we're not targeting a, a, a hybrid private car owner versus a big diesel truck owner. We're not saying that you're a worse polluter. It's just that in the aggregate that's the issue. Um, and then in the other side, the other big kind of chunk of, of emissions obviously is coming from um, buildings and heating. And of that, it's domestic heating, right? It's basically heating our homes and heating our water systems. Yeah, creates an, a massive amount of emissions. And in fact, for the average home. Um, at the moment, for the average home at the moment in the UK, your your emissions footprint from your if someone says to me, "What should I do first, Tom? Should I basically electrify my heating and water system or electrify my vehicle?" On a as automated, you know, the automated person in me, the EV guy, wants to say, "Oh yeah, get an EV." But actually, if you really want to create a dent in your emissions, you should probably electrify your heating and hot water first because that's yeah. probably a bigger emitter than your vehicle for the again for the average car if you're doing forty thousand miles a year it won't be but if you're the average driver it will be um but the issue is obviously how many times do we look at a gas flue coming out of a side of a house in a week probably never how many times do we how many times do we see an exhaust pipe spitting out you know burnt burnt fuel couple of times a week probably at least every day maybe so so it's a much more visible form of pollution because we're sat there going crikey look at that car in front whereas most people don't go to their neighbor's house and go crikey look at all those emissions coming out of their gas boiler but they're there they're and just, you also um, if you go around someone's house and this is where the, the, the problem has so many levels is you go around someone's house and it's warm inside and it's cold outside you're like this is nice you don't see mm. that, that maybe their house ignoring the temperature and whatever is the actual house is incredibly inefficient mm. uh, for whatever reasons, whether it's I lived uh, in a part of London that was in a conservation area and they were really annoying about making a uh, changing windows. And you're like, I'm sorry, no what sense. century yeah, yeah. do we live in where me wanting to put in triple gate glazing versus single panes? Like, why yeah. is that even a question? It's crazy, isn't it? But crazy. You know, we look at all this stuff and you go, okay, yeah, you might have a, a big gas bill, but no one knows about it. Whereas driving around a massive truck, people go, you're driving a massive truck. I can see yeah. you're driving through a town. Um, yeah, it is, a, it, it is a complicated one. And it's not easy. It's not easy and it's not cheap for a, a private a person at home to sort of fix these issues. Yeah, and that's true. I think the, the capital, I mean, there's, there's a few things that come into market in terms of funding models, et cetera, which are making it better. But historically, I'd say if you look at a new car buyer, um, you know, for a, for a few years now, I would argue, for a new car buyer or a user chooser in a fleet, business car, drive, whatever, the financial argument of switching to an EV is is pretty is pretty moot. Like it's it's not really, I mean, it'll either save you money or it certainly won't, shouldn't cost you a lot more to switch to an EV. Whereas obviously investing in a lot of home technology versus not investing in it is obviously a big a big marginal cost. But, you know, we're seeing some interesting models coming around, things like solar at the moment. So, um, you know, you only need to spend a few minutes on social media to see companies bombarding you here in my kind of sector with messages about um, no upfront cost solar. So there are various companies now that are looking at models where they effectively 
do some clever maths, work out what you're going to save on your bills and kind of create a financing package that meets that. So you end up paying finance, but your finance payments are mitigated by the amount you're saving on your bill. Yeah. That's kind of the idea yeah. of it. That's what I do. Um, which kind of, kind of works. Um, you obviously got some help on things like electrifying heat, but you know, 5,000 from the government is, is, is certainly not going to cover the average um, cost of say a heat pump for, for most homes yet. I mean, there are companies saying they're going to do a 3000 pound heat pump or a, they're going to try and get it down to the point where you only have to pay, you know, equivalent to a new gas boiler in addition to the grant, but you know, the grants can't stay forever. So we really right. need to be working out ways to kind of amortize those costs in the longer term. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, no, I, I mean, I get for solar, I mean, I've, I've just got solar panels installed back in Feb and, um, and everyone, the first question you say is, oh, they say, oh, how long are they going to take to pay back? And you go, well, I could work that out, but it's a long-term investment to that's going to give me some utility. And in the same way that no one has ever asked anyone in the history of kitchens, yeah, um, if payback? you pay 15 grand for a new kitchen, no one's ever going to go, oh, what's the payback on your new kitchen? What's the payback on that new? And, you know, it's just a kitchen. It's just, And actually, in the same way someone says, well, Tom, you know, because I – I, I like to talk about the fact that, you know, you can generate solar energy at zero marginal cost. And I do tend to at least qualify by saying marginal cost. And I get criticized by people saying, well, it's not zero marginal cost because you have to pay a few thousand pounds for your solar panels. And I go, yeah, but if you extend that argument, that's like saying that if you're home cooking versus getting a takeaway, you should actually, if you're home cooking, you should take into account the cost of your kitchen because yeah. you couldn't cook at home if you didn't have a kitchen. So actually, it sort of gets a bit stupid because like, well, it's, just, it's just an investment. Um, and it's only the investment for the first buyer because obviously once the solar panels are yeah. there and they've got a, you know, they'll be there for decades. Um, actually, the, the second hope, the person then buys that home, that is just amortizing the cost of their mortgage, right? Or whatever, yeah. or their rent. So they don't even pay, for them, it truly is zero, zero cost yeah. electricity, zero marginal cost, zero cost electricity because they didn't even pay for the panels on their own. They paid for it as part of the overall house, right? So, um, the quicker we get this stuff out there, the quicker it will all kind of effectively get amortized into mortgages, rents, et cetera. And people will stop sort of getting so um, focused on the, the the capital cost because it won't be a capital cost anymore, I, I guess. Yeah, I'm I'm in the process of doing somewhere up that we've just bought and we're going to move into at some point. And, and I'm waiting to see because I've said to them, look, I want to do, you know, as much as possible. Ideally, I like, and I think, a lot of people, you'll be able to tell me, go on this journey of you, you've had an EV, you've charged it at home, you get used to charging at home. You then slightly find going to a petrol station a bit weird because you never go. Or like if for most of my journeys, I never go. I just go, come back home, plug the car and job done. Or if I use a petrol car, last a certain amount of time, then you're like, oh, I've got to go just to go to the petrol station. Um, but you, you start, and I, I, I love all sorts of tech. So I start digging into the size of the battery and whatever. And actually, I think that's an interesting point. Is, is I've seen some pushback on people going, I've got to learn a whole bunch of new lingo and words. And do I really need to know about charging speeds and charging? They wouldn't say charging graphs because they wouldn't know what that is. Um, but you know, what's the difference between a kilowatt hour and a kilowatt and all this sort of stuff? Um, my theory on that is over time, hopefully you won't necessarily need to know very much, but you will need to know because it's, it's a new language. It's a new subject matter. You learn, you pick up something new you're learning about. I've got an audio yeah. thing in my hand and I learn like, like, Oh, okay. That's the input. I've learned a new thing. It's just, it's the way well, of life I, I liken it to like smartphones, right? In the, um, 
when everyone had like, I don't know, if you go back to like the uh, early 2000s, right? And I remember like writing essays on very early computers and stuff, PCs. Um, because I was a bit of a nerd, I probably did know what spec the computer was and how much RAM it had and yeah. you know, what hard drive size was. But most people would have just had a home PC and they wouldn't have known how big the hard drive was. They wouldn't have known about yeah. gigabytes, whatever, right? <laughs> um, but as soon as you get a smartphone, it's like, oh, well, uh, how much storage has it got? Oh, 256 gigabytes. Oh, I want 512 gigabytes. Yeah. You know, uh, so actually people have learned new, new like, if you want to call it jargon, people have learned um, a new language around new products. You know, I bet most people know the term 4K. I don't know what it means, but I bet yeah. more people, you know, people know the term 4K or OLED. Or, or HD. <laughs> yeah, like people, people know that a certain thing is better than another thing, right? Um, 3G, 4G, 5G, people yeah. have learned these things. Um, people know about megabytes per second because they have broadband and they get pissed off when it's low, low megabytes per second or whatever. So actually, people do learn this stuff. Um, what I actually think is more confusing is when you try to infantilize the language and say, well, let's just call it fast charging or standard charging. And it, no. Actually, that doesn't help anyone because what they need to know is how quickly is it going to fill my battery and how quickly is it going to go? And it, it's actually like the maths is way simpler than, yeah. hang on, we sell petrol and diesel in litres, and how do we measure car efficiency? In miles per gallon. Oh, like, does my hang on. So, so, so for, for decades, we've all managed to talk about gallons and the fact that we don't buy fuel in gallons. It's just, I love the idea that, that somehow electric cars are the thing that's complicating this and not petrol and diesel sales. Um, but anyway, I, I, don't, I, I don't, basically, I don't think it'll be a long-term problem. And I do think that people will just have to learn, learn the sort of speeds. But unless you're, unless you're jumping, unless you're a motoring journalist and you're going from different cars to different car every single week with a different size battery and a different size charging speed, it won't be an issue for you because you'll have your E208 with a 45 kilowatt hour usable pack and you'll go, right, so I've got 45 kilowatt hours of usable energy. That's what I need to know for the next two years. I'm going to change my car for two years. So I know that if I head to a 100 kilowatt charger, I will theoretically be able to get maximum speed and you know I might be able to charge it in about half an hour. Whereas if I charge, go to a 50 kilowatt charger and I've got a 45 kilowatt hour pack, It'll be more like an hour. That's kind of all you need to know. And once you've absorbed that information, it's taken you five minutes to do it. You don't have to go and relearn it tomorrow. The, yeah. the nar- it hasn't changed in a week. It's that's that's your car for probably a year, two years, three years. So it's not that hard for most people. Um, but it probably is going to be more of a challenge if you're, as I say, a motoring journalist who's going from a thirty kilowatt hour pack to a forty kilowatt hour pack to a hundred kilowatt hour pack, and you have a press car that has three hundred and fifty kilowatt charging, and the next week you have a press car that only has hundred kilowatt charging. Like, like, yeah, okay, it's the road testers dilemma. Um, it's quite. It's, it's. I was going to say it's. It's quite easy though. Like the once you once you've got the base kind of language of like what we're dealing with, it all lines up. It all like the, the battery size yeah. is equated to the the stuff you're putting in. Like it's in the primary speed, school maths. It's it's, it's primary all, school maths. All the units yeah. align. Whereas yeah. as you, your point about fuel and liters and gallons and the fact that there's a UK gallon and a US gallon, <laughs> and that just really does yeah. my head in. Yeah. I, I mean, I think a, the other thing is that people will, people, A, consumers have suddenly got a lot more aware of kilowatts and kilowatt hours because of, or kilowatt hours at least, because of their energy bills going yeah. up so much, right, in recent years. So suddenly everyone knows a lot more about electricity than they did two years ago. Good. That's a good thing. It's a silver lining out of the whole problem. And, and, and you know, the, the, what's the terrible stuff that's gone on in Ukraine, for example, is people have actually learned more about energy and are realizing they don't want to be dependent on Russian oil and gas for the next decade. Um, 
and people, the more and more people adopt solar. So solar sales in the UK grew faster than EV sales last year. So home solar sales went up by something like 250% last year. So as soon as people get solar, you can be damn sure they're going to go, right, how many kilowatts have I got on the roof? What am I generating? And, you know, for the yeah. for the techie in the household, whoever that is, you know, it doesn't, regardless of your gender, that whoever is, whoever is going to be looking at that technology, you know, day to day, week to week, they will be looking at how much have I generated What's the sun doing on my roof right now? All that sort of stuff. So that will get you into the energy mindset too. So I just think it's like compute. It's like learning computer language, learning the language of smartphones. It's just the next technology that people are going to start learning about. Um, and as you say, that the, the metrics all line up. They're all very. They are. They are metric metrics, and it. You know, it's not going to. It's not going to be a, a challenge for people to kind of retain the information. I think people make a real meal of of how much jargon there is, but actually, they're really. There really isn't, and and if you, as I say, the biggest jargon problem is where you is where you use words, yes. and everyone uses a different word. You know, one company says ultra rapid, one company says ultra fast, one company says high powered. Yeah. You know, fast charging in on the continent is what we call rapid charging in the UK. That's that's the issue. If you actually use the numbers, then it all it all levels out. If you use the numbers. Yeah, it's that one, like bringing it back to TVs. That 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 has done my head in as someone who makes videos and whatever, like. 1080p is a resolution. It's like a size of a number of dots, and then you get 4K and 8K, whatever. When you go, oh, it's HD, and then it's full HD, and then it's ultra HD. Everyone just like once you've got that point, and you look at the TVs, people go, huh, huh? Like what? What am I talking about? I have no idea whatsoever. It doesn't make any sense. And it's exactly the same with fast charging, ultra, whatever, any iteration of that, because I imagine a lot of people. I went the other day and did a journey. This was an interesting one because it was the first like long journey, long back to home journey I've done in my E208 in a while. All the other ones I've like either charged at a destination or strung it out and gone, okay, I know this is on the edge. I'm going to drive at like 65 and carefully and I should be able to get home. Um, and then you hit a diversion that's plus 10 yeah. miles and you have, a, <laughs> you have an interesting day. But it, that, was, that was all fine. But on this this journey, I knew that I was going to go further than I could. And I stopped a, a, a big services. And this is an interesting point about having an EV versus a petrol car. Petrol car, you fill it up. Let's just say you fill it till full and you run it till empty and then you fill it till full. It doesn't really matter when you fill it up because you're always going to have to fill it up when it's empty. So you've driven a certain amount of miles and you're going to have to go to a petrol station. Whereas an EV is a completely different shift. If if you can charge at home, or let's say work or wherever, it's it's a continuous round loop back to base. I would say most of the time, and mm. you only need to get home. So if you get home on zero, I think all of us, you're probably like, yes, I've nailed it. Like I've spent the least amount of money away from home. Yeah, and, yeah. and charging at home is the cheapest. So. Actually, on my, let's say, 200-mile journey, I knew I was probably going to be able to get about 140 miles out of the car, something like that. At some point in time, I want to charge. But it doesn't really matter how deep into the journey, let's just say over a third, over half maybe, I need to charge. But other than that, it doesn't matter. So you can pick your charging points yeah. accordingly. And pick plan your journey, but it is a very different plan to 
while just popping in and filling up or whatever. But the the whole shift is is really different. It's t- it's it's a definitely a top up rather than a fill up. Although I mean, I say fill up culture. I mean, the last so the last internal combustion car I had was a diesel A six. Uh, in my sort of two, two jobs ago, I guess, and I did about forty thousand miles a year, so I was spending a lot of well, the company was spending a lot of money on diesel, and I did fill up to empty pretty much, right? I did, yeah. I did fill it up, drive it as far as it could go, pretty much down to the red light, and I'd go and fill up again. Most people do not do that. Most people, so the average fill, bear, bearing in mind this, you know, most small petrol tanks or diesel tanks on the market are like what forty liters. Yeah. The average fill, and this is this is a figure I, I you know I got in my previous role, given that it was part of a electric business that was part of an oil and gas company. Um, the average fill is twenty liters on a Ford Corp. That's the average. Yeah. Because actually, most people get to about half, and they go, oh, "I've got a third of a tank. I need to fill up." Do they actually? Yeah, because they don't. People, most people do not run their cars down to the red light or the fuel warning light and then fill up again. Or if they do that. If particularly in the cost of living crisis, if they are running it down to the fuel light, they're certainly not spending sixty quid to fill it up again. They're actually yeah, spending yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, thirty quid or whatever, forty quid to fill up twenty or twenty or so liters, and then they're using that twenty liters and they're doing it again. So however they run it, most people are not filling the tank. So that really annoys me when people go, How long does it charge take to charge the car fully? And you go, the only time you're ever gonna charge the car fully is at home. or like uh, at a de- yeah, yeah. a destination where you're low and you literally want to chop chop it away. If you're out and about, if you're doing rapid charging, you're not going to be charging the car. Even from zero to 80, you're not going to be doing that. In almost any case, you're going to be going from like 30% to 70%, maybe. Yeah. That's that's kind of the model. Um, so we used to kind of look at those metrics of, and, and actually, if you, that sounds a bit stupid, we were like, if you worked out the average, so let's say, so 20 litres is, uh, is less, less, less than five gallons, isn't it? So four and a bit no, gallons, something like that. So, um basically what we what we did was work out that if you so the average dwell time on a four court is about seven minutes end to end right yeah so it doesn't take seven minutes to fill the car but the whole end the whole stopping process, process is about yeah. seven minutes so you're part of seven minutes basically um if you if the average fill is 20 liters and that will take you let's say 150 miles yeah ish but uh, uh, maybe, maybe uh, probably let's say let's be generous and say maybe 200 miles right so between 150 and 200 miles, depending on the efficiency of the car. And that's seven minutes. Well, actually, ultra-rapid charging now, even 150 kilowatt technology and a decently reasonably efficient car, 100 miles in 10 minutes is easily possible. In fact, 150 miles in 10 minutes is doable. That's today. That's not like five years' time. That's today. Yeah. So hang on a minute. We're saying that seven minutes average drop on a forecourt for an average fill of about 150 miles, 200 miles, and yet we can get 150 miles in 10 minutes for an EV charger? Whoa, hang on a minute. The gap is way smaller than most people think. So yes, yes, you can go and fill up a car completely in that seven minutes. You could go and do a full fueling transaction and get, and, and you know, there are people that have told me they've got 1,200-mile range ICEs. Okay. I, I, I think <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's longer than the world record, actually, that, that I think like Andrew <laughs> Frankel set by driving an Audi over Europe. Um, Rebecca Jackson and Andrew Frankel, I think, did a journey a lot a while ago in an Audi A6 where I think they did. I can't remember if that was a world record on the tank, but it, like, maybe it was a number of countries they 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 did on a tank. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, that's a that most people are not getting 1,200 miles on a tank. Let's be very very generous and say that most people can get about 500 miles on average out of a tank, maybe six, but 500 miles on average. 
Um, I think my wife's like, old petrol cleared at about 350 on tanks, about 400. Um, that means you, yes, you could go and get 500 miles of range in about seven minutes. But how many people? It's still, it's, you have to kind of think how many people do that. And actually, the flip side is that vast minority that go and get four, five, 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 six hundred miles of range in seven minutes on a forecourt. Well, look at all the benefit of the vast majority of people that will be able to get, or the majority, maybe not the vast majority of people that will be able to get charged at home and they won't even notice how long it's taken because they'll be asleep. So, you know, it's very easy to shoot holes in the charging time thing. But actually, when you sort of look at the reality of who who actually does that, it's tiny, tiny numbers of people. Um, Very few people get, very few people get a little bit of fuel and very few people get loads of fuel. People can, it's a bell curve and it's the same for EV charging, you know, very few people do like the the people that do like three four kilowatt hour top ups are usually people who've got their EV for the first time and they're like they're testing the public charge point. Yeah. And the people who get like seventy kilowatt hours are usually private high drives in London that are knackering the cut. Um, so you know, it is a you've kind of got to look at the data and say just because you can just because someone could go and get six hundred miles of range in seven minutes, are any are any real people doing that on a on a really regular basis? And the answer is no, they're not. Yeah, you've got these. It's it's like the everyone always brings up the edge cases, and I was listening to some stuff about America recently or whatever. But like it'll be like, and I think we do it with all aspects of our life. I 100% do it with cars. You go, I need a car big enough to hold all of the stuff that I might carry the longest distance in one year, like, like or the five years that I'm going to own the car for. Yeah. If if on one day I move house and I travel a thousand miles, I need to be able to fit all my stuff in that car for that one day to do a thousand miles. And we we all do it. I think a lot of people do it, and then it's just varying degrees, and it always comes out as an argument about you know, yeah. the range or the whatever. And this, I, I get. I'm starting to get a bit of. I don't know whether it's like technology paralysis or purchasing paralysis around EVs right now because I know I know what I've done with my E2A and it's, it's actually been it's been great. I if if it hadn't been a lease I would have kept it. But it's going back so I've got to look at the the wider thing. I'm seeing the pace there's two things. The the pace of technology change mm. is significant and I kind of know a lot about EVs now. So I know think like if it can accept, I was with a, uh, a Rimac Nevera recently, actually. And I was asking one of the people about it and he was saying that can charge at 500 kilowatts. Yeah. yeah. Um, now there are, there were basically no 500 kilowatts, but the bit that I found interesting and I'd not really clocked is like, I said, do you, I was asking him about the nav and whether it preconditions the battery and whatever. And he was like, you don't do it. It doesn't matter. He's like, we can precondition the battery really fast, but you can pull up to a 350 kilowatt charger and you will get 350 kilowatts. It will just take it. Boom. Yeah. No problem. And I, and it, and it's because it can charge at 500. It's like, yeah. it can take 500. So it's only running at half speed. It's no problem. Yeah. And that, and that, yeah, and I'd say, I mean, the, and as I say, when you talk about kind of range, I mean, range, people sort of say now, you know, range anxiety isn't a thing, it's charge anxiety. And actually, the only reason anyone, the only the only reason anyone criticizes the range of electric cars, because we know that, you know, that there are performance cars out there. Someone the other day was saying, you know, I've got an Audi RS4 and I can do 300 miles on a tank. So there are now 
EVs on the market that have longer range than my Audi RS4. Nobody in the history of Audi RS4 journalism has ever said that an Audi RS4 has a short range. Like, yeah. But because you can fill it up in seven minutes, it doesn't matter. Um, so it's it's char- charging time is actually a way bigger issue than range, in my view, of a car. So I would I would happily get a lower range EV that could charge faster, personally. Yes. Like that's yes. my, my I would I if if my if someone if Jaguar had an iPace in the market um, that that had a mine's got a 90 kilowatt hour, so 84 ish usable. If they said we've actually got one on the market that's got a 70 kilowatt hour usable battery, so significantly smaller, but it can charge at 200 kilowatts, I'd go, yeah, I'll take it, take it tomorrow. Because actually, for me, that the the utility of fast charging is is number one. That's brilliant. Um, and actually, unless you do it all the time, unless you're doing it literally all the time, um, you know, you're not going to see any real degradation over the life of the vehicle anyway. Um, that's significant enough to to warrant battery replacement or anything dramatic like that. Um, so I would definitely go for that. And and I think the where we are now with cars that are around the sort of two fifty three hundred kilowatt charging speed, that's kind of where we need to be. I don't think it's going to go far beyond that because actually, you're then pushing the limits of battery voltage and stuff. And I don't think we need to do that. It's sort of fast enough, but that's the level at which we, we need to get to is that almost equivalence with the average, the average ICE refuel, I guess. Um, and again, I know Lotus came out with this 500 kilowatt charger, at, um, the trying to, the uh, Shanghai motor the other day. And, and probably the same reason, right? Is that it means you can go to a 350 kilowatt charger and pretty much know you're going to get 350 because the car could accept a lot higher. Yeah. Um, so that make that makes sense to me. And uh, I mean, Audi was talking about this ages ago about downsizing battery packs and going actually from a yeah. resource conservation point of view, it's way better for us to make two 50 kilowatt EV, 50 kilowatt hour EVs that can charge at 300 kilowatts than make one hundred kilowatt hour EV that can only charge at hundred kilowatts, you know, yeah. just, just makes more sense. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's an interesting thing that, and efficiency will be play a bigger role as well. And rightly, there's a lot of OEMs that have been, well, there's a few have been criticized for very inefficient evs in in the last few years where the ev huh? <laughs> the hummer <laughs> well yeah well i'm I, close to home i'm thinking but yeah i mean there's a few i, I mean there's a there's yeah. there was one i there was one i had I mean, i'm not an embarrassment but i mean you know where i was genuinely getting um probably less than two miles per kilowatt hour at some points and that that's horrific for a for a pat for a stand fairly fairly standard passenger vehicle that is that is if you're getting under two miles per kilowatt hour that's horrendous it's not yeah. bad that's horrendous so we need to see oems upping their game on, on efficiency and like driveline efficiency and making drivelines more efficient because it's a bit like a hemi or something right you actually and um uh you know all of these like performance cars end up with like cylinder shutoff technology because yeah. most of the time you actually want the car in like eco yeah eco mode it's going to do five miles cut out Yes, give it the ability to absolutely knock it out of the park. And if if you do, if you want to get it on track and do one point five miles per kilowatt hour, fine. But actually, most of the time, people don't want it in maximum attack mode. They want it in. Yeah. I'm driving around town. I'm going shopping mode. So that that almost mindset needs to come to EVs of actually we need to make the most efficient drive line we can in this mode, and actually have the ability for someone to change the mode to put it in. Give me all the power mode, but actually all these five six hundred brake horsepower EVs that are coming to market in my mind, probably need to be dialed down to like 200 horsepower at most, most of the time, like for motorway driving, anything yeah. else, you know, you don't, I don't need, like my e-nero is perfectly, that was like 200 horsepower. That was perfectly capable of any journey, uh, at all the speeds I would want sort of thing that I didn't need any more power than that. Um, and I've got, you know, I've got an iPace with about 400 now. I certainly don't, all the stuff coming out to market now, it's got 556. I think really, 
I mean, isn't isn't that a factor of I heard somewhere that if if you have a bigger motor and you're running it slower, it's more efficient yep. than running a small rotor yes. fast. So yes. lots of these speeds and you know horsepower, old school metric um, yep. numbers for these EVs are just yep. a byproduct. Uh, exactly of, of, of what it could do yeah so as long as there's that sort of like gearing if you want to call it in there to reduce it down when it needs to be reduced i think that's really important for for oem to think about uh, which some as i say some of these evs didn't have and, and they were giving you maximum attack all the time which wasn't very helpful um i mean i you know it's a bit like um i had a i've had that in ICEs, right i had a i had for a while um i had a downsized turbo petrol insignia back in the day and it was awful it was like 25 miles per gallon awful yeah because i was i was hammering around motorways all the time um so it's a 1.4 turbo petrol thing and then i had a and i had a press from the press field i had a i had um uh when they were still in the uk i had the camaro press car at one point this is back in about 2012 i don't know yeah um i took it down to goodwood and i and I, I remember going to collect it in luton i drove it back home to kent and I got 30 miles per gallon on the motorway from Luton to Kent. And I was like, what? Because it because it was a big old 6.2 VA yeah. that was just burbling at barely tick over all the way yeah. po- all the way home on motorway speeds. It wasn't doing any work. So it's the same principle, I think. Um, and I, I think that's probably why it does make more sense to sort of maybe over motor something, but give it give it the right settings and modes and, and sort of gearings to be able to not reju- not perform all of that, not re- needle at mode speed all the time, basically, I guess. And it does throw out some of the, like, one of the reasons why I want a small car for town, but also I quite like having a small car. But, and generally, historically, small cars have been more efficient because they're just mm. the engines, let's say the engine techs are similar across and they're smaller, moving less mass, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we've got this situation where I look at the E208 and it's like, it's, it's, it's pretty good, but you could buy. I could buy a Tesla Model 3 or a bunch of like a bunch of bigger kind of crossover type cars, whether you want one or not, that's different, that's a different decision. But like you can buy a bigger, blockier looking car that could in theory be as efficient or mm. more efficient. So that's another factor that comes into it. Cause I go, well, if I'm getting a small car, because I kind of want it to be efficient and small, but it's less efficient, like genuinely less efficient than a bigger car. I should just be getting the bigger car. Yeah, yeah. It is weird. It's a weird. It's a weird. Um, it's a weird thing, really, where that happens. But yeah, I mean, and I, and that's why I say I think, you know, I, I I don't think I don't think big batteries are where the obsession should be. I think the obsession should be in efficient drive lines, so efficient powertrains, uh, which I think the Koreans have nailed yeah. bluntly, um, and in in fast charging technology so moving to 800 volt architecture and i mean hyundai was massively ballsy in going for 800 volt architecture uh hyundai and kia i should say um in the mainstream because i reckon until about 2019 maybe i can't remember when they announced it actually but the in the industry at large i would say was pretty convinced that 800 volt architecture was going to be the preserve of like Aston because I think Aston yeah. had done their Rapidi prototype and we were like it's probably going to be the luxury end right and then suddenly Hyundai, Hyundai and Kia go out and say we're going to move to 800 volt architecture for our mainstream passenger cars and everyone's like whoa okay that's game changing suddenly we're all thinking about rolling out rapid charging instead then 
Um, and I mean kind of three, 300 kilowatt plus charging. Um, so I think that was really important to kind of get the industry in that mindset that we need to be moving to faster charging vehicles. Um, and obviously, when you move to higher voltage architecture, you also have the benefits that you can you can do the higher power charging at with less stress on the battery, actually, as well, in many yeah. cases. So that's a benefit. Um, but I think if you can get more, you know, given that the, a lot of the concerns around EVs are around um, resources and materials and mining and so on, if you can basically get more vehicles out of every bit of raw material, that's that's got to be better, right? So if you can make, if you can double the efficiency of an EV, that's massive, that's game-changing. Um, and simultaneously, if you can... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. If you can get the charging speeds up as well, because, you know, again, if you can get the efficiency better, you don't need to do anything with charging speeds because, um, you know, it's like my, my Kia could... Um, I'm just trying to think of that through now. Um, yeah, so my Kia has a my Kia could charge a maximum of about uh, seventy six kilowatts, something like that. I think. Yeah. Um, and my iPace can do on paper it can do one hundred and four, but actually I've got it up to about one hundred and sixteen before. Um, but the Kia can charge faster in my in the way I call it is the Kia can actually charge faster in terms of miles per minute. Yeah. Because because it's more efficient. It can actually, even at that lower charge rate, it can still get me. It can okay. get me going quicker. That's the thing. Is actually, you're like, well, my car can do this charging. Ring. You're like, yeah, but if it's inefficient, it doesn't matter because I can be gone from. The, if it did, it's like Formula One strategy, right? It's basically, I can be out of the pits quicker than you because I've got my 50 miles of range quicker than you have. Yeah. Even though my car's got a lower charging speed, and that's the other thing people haven't come into mind. And I've seen a lot of company car fleets now say we are, we are basically getting all of the OEMs to give us much more. Uh, much richer data on real world efficiency because we want our company car drivers to order efficient EVs because we don't yeah. want them to have to pay so much for charging costs, etc. So people are getting more obsessed with it now, rightly. Um, and the OEMs that aren't delivering efficient EVs are going to find themselves in a bit of trouble, basically. I think. Right, and, and the amounts of power we're talking about, like if you, as soon as I think, as soon as well, we've had all this the pricing changes around home stuff and just general electricity price. So I think people are more aware. But if you start using an EV, you get a real tangible real world, like what amount of power am I using to drive mm. somewhere? And then you come back home and go, what amount of power am I using at home? And you get like an idea. And then you also learn that in your EV, you're using a ton of power. Yeah. And when you look at like, like you say, my, my ideal is to have the battery pack as small as possible yeah. but be more efficient because you're like, if I could just charge from a three pin and it was a 20 kilowatt hour battery pack, 
It's not going to take that long to charge it. Yeah. Well, that's the weird thing. Yeah. And, and in a way, the weird thing is that we've had that obsession in ICEs, right? Because, because standard... A standard fuel. I mean, there was there was a, there was a, there was a famous. I can't remember which OEM it was. I think it was one of the German OEMs, but I'm not going to say here in case I get it wrong. They did a press release a while back where, um, I think they said we've made the car this much lighter, and then you read into it, and they'd made the fuel tank smaller, and the uh, reduction in the fuel tank size equated to the reduction in. You're like, so you've made the car lighter by making the fuel tank smaller. Well done. Um, or, or they'd said we've increased the range of the car, or efficiency. Yeah. We've increased, but they'd done it by increasing the fuel tank size. I can't remember. Um, but there was that obsession with, because most fuel tanks are fairly standard sizes, right? You know, people have either got a sort of 45-ish litre or they've got a 70-ish litre or you maybe yeah. have the 90-odd litres, right? But you've kind of got this, like, fairly approximate industry standard sizing around fuel tanks. I don't know why that was, by the way. I'm not sure if there's some sort of guideline out there that says how big a fuel tank ought to be. And therefore, the engineers went, right, how do we get the maximum amount of miles out of that amount of energy, that amount yeah. of liquid energy? So we almost need that mentality of, right, let's assume you're constrained by a 50 kilowatt hour pack. Now yeah. give us the maximum range you can get from a 50 kilowatt hour pack, please. That's the kind of mentality we need. But instead, the mentality is, oh, we'll just shove some extra modules on. We'll just make a bigger battery. Like, uh, no, because not only is that resource inefficient, it's also weight inefficient. And obviously, weight's the, you know, weight, is, weight is bad for efficiency, weight is bad for safety, et cetera, et cetera. So actually, and it's, and it's worth things like tire wear, right? But there isn't that there doesn't seem to be as big a focus on that as there has been with ICEs, which is weird given that that was all the focus there was on ICEs for the last like decade or two of, of yeah. ICE development. It was all around efficiency and reducing um, emissions per mile. It is completely mad. So this is another, when you've got, you're giving people words, you're saying fast charging, you're saying the range. And I think one thing with range is, it is, it's done by an independent tested testing group, whatever. You've got WLTP and then whatever the American one is, EPA. Um, so it's not the manufacturer. So when they say this is the range and it's a WLTP of 300 miles and you get 200 on a cold day mm. down a motorway or 150 if you're going 80 or something, you can't, you can't go back to the manufacturer and go, you told me it was 300. It's like it, the way they've measured it is ridiculous for that for that use case mm. and then there's no the efficient like you said the efficiency just doesn't get put it should the efficiency should be put on the windscreen and when they say oh it'll do 400 miles of range or let's just say i'm taking this hummer because it's a ridiculous example of a car that is ridiculous yeah 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 and they've they say oh it's it's fine you'll get 300 you get 300 miles of range and then you go, yeah, but you've you've kind of put the if we bring it back to combustion cars, it's like saying it'll get three hundred miles of range, but I've put a four hundred liter tank in it. <laughs> yeah, and you're yeah. like, oh, that's going to take me a really long time to fill up. That's and probably expensive. massive. Yeah, yeah. It's heavy. Like, I totally agree. Earth? I mean, I think I'd love more manufacturers to just be more upfront, really publicly in their marketing about expected real world range yes um i have to praise bmw on this because they did a really good job with the i i mean the i3 i i, I used to have an i3 and I, I still miss it because i just i'm not sure i could get on with it with back with those back doors with two kids but um it's an amazing car you know the manufacturing of it the kind of cradle to grave approach on the manufacturing side was great and the marketing was very very honest because bmw from the get-go i think the the one i have was the sort of 33 kilowatt hour 94 amp hour battery and i think the range on it 
again, um, like, you know, the NEDC or whatever it was at the time, maybe it was, maybe uh, I think it was NEDC still at that point. It was about 195 miles from a 33 kilowatt hour power. No way you were going to get that. No way you were going to get more than six miles per hour. And BMW said in their marketing materials, it wasn't like a, you know, line of the press. This was very public um, that we would, ex- you would expect to get about, I think it was 125 miles of range. Yeah. And the maximum I ever got out of it was 126, I think, on, on my yeah. best ever, best ever range, best ever journey with it. Um, and I think that's a really good, good way to, 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 you know, to be open with customers and say, look, this is the laboratory test. And what we think you'll get is this. And now obviously, you know, yes, of course, some manufacturers might be more optimistic than others. And how do you kind of benchmark that? But I think if a manufacturer is honest and says, look, this is what we expect you to get, they'll face much less criticism than they're getting today for, yeah. for what are they, in? they're not in control of it. I mean, I don't, I don't blame them. They're not in control of it. They're not, you know, there was a story in the Daily Mail about a guy who had a Mustang Mach-E and was saying, you know, well, I, I was promised 350 miles of range. You weren't, you weren't promised that. No one said you were promised that, right. but it's on the brochure, right? Um, <laughs> and if you so, drove in a vacuum at 40 miles an hour, that's you what you get. get. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it is, it is a, it, it is a challenge. Um, but I think they could all do with being a bit more on the same. And actually, in the same way that most people didn't buy, I think the range thing is going to fall away as a concern because once you get over 200 miles, I think most consumers just go, fine, that's enough. Yeah. You know, over 300 miles, so that's enough. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it's 320, 330, I don't care. So I don't think it's going to become the big differentiator anymore. It's not going to be like if a manufacturer says, we expect you to get 300 miles and another one says 350. The one that says 350 isn't going to sell way more cars because of that, in my view. People are going to start going, what else can the car do? How fast can it charge? Does it do vehicle to grid? Has it got, I don't know, faster charging? You know, has it got um, other features that I would want? Battery preconditioning, you know, remote preconditioning, whatever. I think it's all going to be the other differentiators that sell the car, not not the range. So I don't think manufacturers need to be nervous about being honest about the range figure because in the long run, they'll get much more benefit from the consumer thanking them, if you like, for it than they will at the moment by saying, well, don't blame us, it's the WLTP figure. Well, yeah, but it's... You know, it's such a big concern for for people who are making the switch right yeah. now that there needs to be more more openness around it. Yeah, absolutely, and it's managing expectations. And certain certain manufacturers, I know, I think Mercedes. In if if you look at EPA rating, which and then a lot of this testing has been done by people in, in the states as well, but and in Europe, but the EPA rating is pretty much that seems to be. If you look at that number, I look at a car and go, yeah, I think it's going to get that. It's going it's going to do that, and. Mercedes, it seems like, seem to be really like hitting the numbers that they say, like big style or getting more. Mm. Um, but you know, that's it. It's just, you've sold me a product. If you tell me a number, it needs to get that number. I need to, like with my, the Peugeot, there was a lot of learning because the readout was just wrong. Like just, just, it's not correct. It seems to have got slightly better over time. So I don't know whether it, it's, learning over time yeah yeah um so you then end up doing some maths you go right i know it's got a 46 kilowatt hour battery i know i've got 50 percent, and then i know my efficiency and that's that's how far i will go you you do those sorts of calculations but it would be it'd be nice if all of the cars <laughs> did it so many i mean my, my like well. rough rule of thumb is basically that um most cars are going to get about three to three and a half like on average, if you just drive them normally and you're not, you're not a saint, you're not hypermiling, you're not doing 60 mile an hour behind a lorry, you know, most car, most EVs are going to get roughly in that ballpark of sort of three, three to four, let's say, let's call it three and a half as an average. Um, 
but obviously with the tailoring of that if it's a bigger luxury ev it's more towards the three and if it's a lighter more you know korean ev it's more towards the four but you know anything outside that is is sort of either terrible or extremely optimistic you know if it's yeah. two it's terrible and if someone's promising you five or six you know particularly you know journalists just need to call it out as bs and say that yeah. this car is not going to get an average of five or six with most people so let's be honest you know let's just let's just say that now because it's, it's it's not just the, the physics doesn't doesn't go in their favor so um i think if, if people just sort of have that figure in their head to go well look most cars are going to get about three to four battery pack is x therefore three to four times x is about this so i know my bracket of range right i know that yeah. my bracket if you've got 40 kilowatt battery i know i'm going to get between 120 160 miles that's kind of okay i i know that now um but yeah i think there needs to be a bit more a bit better communication around that um but again because a lot of technology is new it's not you know the media don't necessarily know what to question yet either yeah. you know it's sort of because there's so much new technology that it's it's getting it's harder to identify what should we call out what should we question um where are the claims that we should say hang on a minute that's not quite right um but i think i think we'll get there you know i think we'll we'll, we'll get there eventually yeah um well and you know the cars are a lot more i mean the you know what, what's really going to accelerate adoption is probably vehicle choice as well and at the moment the um the range of vehicles that are now available is is way better but there's still there's still very limited options for some user groups i mean um you know if you want an electric estate car you you've basically got a uh, you've basically got the extremes of a Taycan Sport Turismo, which my wife said isn't an estate car. She doesn't like estate cars. She said it's not an estate <laughs> car. Uh, so I can have it. That's good because she doesn't like estate cars. Interesting. Um, and um, and uh, MG5, whatever, right? Yeah, that's so it. Pr- pretty much. Um, but similarly, you know, if you need a wheelchair accessible vehicle, you're pretty stuffed at the moment. You know, So there's lots of different um, vehicle derivatives that we've got to get sorted in terms of electric alternatives. Um, but but the, the but the range is a lot better. The choice is a lot better now, and, and the used market's pretty buoyant now. Um, I was actually quite not pleased is the wrong word because that sounds like I'm like happy that people have got cars worth less than they thought they were. But I I was I was it was good news I think to see that actually used values were softening a bit recently because you know I am um, I was looking at Enero. I had I had a company Enero um, from 2019 to 2021, and in 2019, we bought them for about 33 grand with a bit of a discount. Yeah. And by 2021, you couldn't buy one for less than 33 grand. I'm like that does that is not sensible market practice. No. Like that is not that is not a good market condition that they're just not depreciating at all um, in two years, um, and it's not good for used buyers because they, they can't get their hands on them. And we all know it was due to reduced supply, and obviously supply then increased quite a lot across various brands, and therefore values softened and i think generally that's a good thing i think people should have had a bit more awareness that that was going to happen so people going oh i'm really shocked my car was worth 15 grand six months ago now it's worth 10 <laughs> well it, but it wasn't really worth 15 grand six months ago that's the problem is that yeah. you were told it was but it, it shouldn't have been worth that because it's four years older um but i do think you know i mean the range of cars you can get now i mean um i we bought an mg zs um recently to swap out for a petrol clear we had so we've got now we've got two ev two bevs and at that point, in that sort of vehicle segment, for the for the money we spent on it, it was pretty much the only thing we could have bought that was sort of big enough for like a buggy going in sideways and stuff. Yeah. There were a couple of other things we looked at. The buggies, the boots weren't quite big enough, or they were too expensive. They were, yeah, you know, the, all the Eneros were well over thirty k. Yeah, um, and we we're like, we're not going to spend that. But now, you know, if you want a car for about twenty five to twenty eight k, I mean, you could buy an I Pace, you could buy Model Three Tesla. There's loads, and you think, crikey, and that's literally in the space of 
five months. I reckon that yeah. that's all changed. Crazy. Do you, what do you think about the next? Because this is this is the situation I'm in. I'm looking at the prices, and I go, well, I know what happened over the last two years, and I know that also the this is probably another good topic. But you you look at the the pricing. I look at pricing of cars and go a Tesla Model Three at thirty grand and it like and a standard one you go well they've just reduced they they keep lopping off the price on the on new cars and you can order a new car and and there's so many cars for sale mm. and the same the same with E208s and other things I've been looking at there's so many cars for sale like let's just say there's like 500 E208s and they're all 20 to 30 and you're like Mm, but you can order a new one for 34 yeah. like over the next six months nine months year i don't know what it is i'm waiting for the 50 grand Taycan. like it's yeah. gonna happen and it's not gonna be that long because these cars are just there's not enough consumers for them there's lots of supply coming through all the, all the big d fleets from that those big registration years of sort of um you know 2020 so end of 19 early 20 they're all coming through now um, and obviously yeah. EVs still did well during COVID as well. So it's not like we've got a big gap in D-Fleet volumes coming through. We'll have a lot coming through D-Fleet in the next 12 months, 24 months. Um, I agree. I, I think, to be honest, a lot of it is, you know, I mean, you've seen loads of stories in the press about, you know, dealers saying they're not going to accept any EVs anymore. They're not going to sell them. All this rubbish. <laughs> well, and you're like, well, someone will. That's um, a price. <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I, and as always, it's the what a car is listed for is never what it's actually going to sell for, right? So, so there's always that kind of health warning that um, – you know, people will always seek to get as much as they can on the listing. But actually, when you say, look, I'll give you this much, you know, you will probably get a deal. Um, there'll definitely be some softening uh, in the market still. I mean, I, I've got a standing like eBay alert for um, EVs under seven grand, I think, just just yeah. to see what's going on in the market, right? And it's basically Leafs and Zoe's and the occasional Twizzy. That's the reason I've got it set up. Um, and... Um, you know, and there's lots there now, right? And there's like 30 kilowatt hour lease, you know, there's 100 plus mile range lease going for eight to nine grand now. Um, yeah. So there's, there's, if you want to buy an EV for less than 10 grand, there are, I would say, quite a lot of options now. Not not like 50 different models to choose from, but there's a reasonable range of options. Whereas before it was basically just, you could buy a leaf and that was it. Um, I think the, you know, there's some interesting stuff coming through the used market. I mean, you know, for a lot of people, something like the kind of, the cars that will that will do, you know, a hundred every day of the week, hundred miles of range plus every day of the week, and do rapid charging. And if you stretch their legs, they might do more like two hundred or one hundred fifty plus. Those kind of cars, I think, are the interesting ones coming through now, right? So the the second gen sort of battery technology, because early yeah. Nissan Leafs did struggle a bit with 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 early battery tech and preheating and stuff. Um, so things like the sort of, I guess, what I'd call the second generation Leafs, the forty forty kilowatt hour Leaf. The Ionics, particularly so the 38 kilowatt hour Ionic, the second gen Hyundai Ionic, not the Ionic 5, but the one before that. You know, these are these are like 10 to 15 grand cars now that that uh, would 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 easily be someone's only car, like quite happily. Yeah. Um so that's that's I think the, the next sort of market that's that's probably quite ripe for people kind of getting getting stuck into uh, as buyers. And it's an it is like if if you're if you've got a second car if you've got two cars in your household and you're remotely if you've still got this like i don't you know 
I, I do 500 miles a, a week or a day in something else, fine. But owning a cheap-ish, and we are starting to see, we are starting to see just cheap EVs. Yeah. Um, the, if you can charge at home or charge at work or whatever, your running costs for the year are just nothing in comparison to a petrol car. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, there were, you know, I've seen some really early stuff, like early, like Mitsubishi IMUs and stuff like that, selling, I mean, there's one the other day, it sold for about three grand. You think, well, actually, you know, if you're spending two grand a year on fuel, you could basically charge that at home and probably in two years, you've, you've just paid the car off. Like the car is basically yeah. just free. Um, so it's it's becoming, as I say, in the, what what we need to tackle, I was sort of saying a while back, the, 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 for the new car buyer, I think for a few years now, it's been a bit of a no-brainer to go for an EV for various reasons. You know, BIK tax is complete no-brainer for people. Um, but the, the problem has been for used buyers because actually for as a used buyer, you, you never got the grant, you didn't get any help. So actually buying an EV and running it was always like, well, it's a lot more expensive than a, yeah. an ICE. Whereas now I think that, that, that sort of algebra is changing a bit and people are able to make the numbers stack up a bit more as a used purchase, which is, which is good news generally. As I say, I mean, I know people are, are feeling the pinch on a car they've bought and they thought was worth more, but it's good news overall for the market, I would say, that that's happening. Yeah, um, But yeah, I mean, used buyers getting it. I mean, we have got a bit of an issue of public charging pricing at the moment, but that is largely down to wholesale electricity prices being driven by gas. So, and I know this seems very tangential when we're talking about EVs and technology, but one of the big things that's going to happen, well, the government said it will try and do in the next two years, I think, or next, I don't think it can get it done in a year, but next two couple of years, is some relatively uh, easy way of, of basically de-linking the, the, the wholesale price of electricity from the wholesale price of gas. So what, what effectively happens is there's a system in place that prevents if, if you imagine how cheap renewables actually are to, to generate, right, in terms of pence per kilowatt of electricity at wholesale levels, if you yeah. if you let the sort of true cost of those go into the market at the true cost rather than some sort of agreed marginal cost for all producers, what you'd get is you'd just kill fossil fuels overnight because they're yeah. so cheap that if we could generate enough of them, the price of the fossil fuels would seem so apparently high that no one paid them and therefore the markets would, the markets would literally fall out. And you couldn't have that because you can't have a market collapse. So you have to sort yeah. of... So there are there are mechanisms in place to ensure that you can't flood the market basically with super cheap power and everyone everyone only pays a cheap price. Everyone basically pays the the price of the of the kind of the the, the higher the higher um, marginal price that goes into the market. So what you end up with is the fact that gas is more expensive to produce ends up making electricity more expensive for all of us, even yeah. though the generators can produce it for less money they can't sell it to us for less because they have to put it into the wholesale yeah. market and, and so on. So they, so the, the only real way to get super cheap electricity is to generate it yourself at the moment. Um, but that will change. You know, once that delinking happens, that will massively change um, and probably unlock the power of renewables. But it's not, you know, it's not the public charging operator's fault that they're having to charge quite expensive price at the moment for electricity. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, when I was, um, I mean, I remember paying, you know, like 15p a kilowatt hour for rapid charging, like, four years ago yeah <laughs> now it's now it's an average of about 60 so it's, it's basically quadrupled um which seems horrendous but it, it it will come down i'm convinced it will come down and come down quite significantly um another thing is that the one of the reasons why you can drive uh cheaper domestic prices obviously the domestic electricity providers hedge right they basically buy in advance in bulk yeah. which public charging operators even the biggest ones aren't really operating in enough scale yet to do that 
So they're still buying like on the spot market and they're still basically buying electricity in quite a rudimentary way where they're not able to get the, the, the benefit of lower prices. Um, and it is this big misconception anyway that that businesses, because businesses can usually buy stuff for less than consumers, right? Because they can retain yeah. the van and everything. There's this general perception out there among among the, the public that domestic electricity um, must be more expensive than commercial electricity, which just isn't the case at all. So generally speaking, the cheapest electricity out there is domestic because you're using more of it. So, um, you know, most businesses cannot buy electricity for the same price as consumers can buy it for. So that's another issue is that you get people piping up and saying, well, I can get 5p per kilowatt hour electricity. So this must mean that public charging company A yeah. is charging 50p is making 45p profit. And you're like, no, no, it really isn't. Um, I mean, I, some of them, a couple of them I, I saw quotes for in terms of their electricity prices. And they were paying like, they were being quoted 95p a kilowatt hour for electricity. It's just, yeah. you know, it's horrendous. And presumably... Like for if you're setting up a big infrastructure charger, like you're you're Some asking cost. for you're That's asking it, yeah. for power on like a level that it trickling into your home does not consist yeah. of. You're so like, the, I want a megawatt. So the standard, <laughs> well, so the average. So if you're building homes, what you you, you get a most new homes now get a hundred amp incoming supply, which is about twenty kilowatts of maximum power that you could be drawing at any one time. Most people don't do that, obviously. So if you imagine a, um, if you imagine, but, but so although they're 20 kilowatts maximum, the, the kind of, if you like, average rating that a developer will look at or, or, or a grid company will look at for a home is they will assume that there'll be like an average load of, of about two kilowatts, sort of roughly, sometimes lower than that, sometimes more like a kilowatt or 0.8 kilowatts. So let's assume it's two kilowatts, which means that if you go and install a 150, a single 150, let's say a single 300 kilowatt charger, you are asking the grid for 150 homes worth of power yeah. for this one charger all the time because you don't want it like only peak times during the day. You want it all. You want it accessible 24-7. So not only will you end up paying more for the commercial energy to supply that charger, you'll also pay through the nose for the standing charges because you're, a base, you're, you're, you're sort of paying the standing charges for, th- for 150 homes, right? You're, so you're paying a massive amount for the, for the sort of DUOS charges, for the, for the network charges to keep that power reserved for you all the time um so it's it's a big cost uh, it's not a cheap business you know there's uh, you know at some point um you know public charging companies might start making decent profits and and you know I, I hope they do for their sake but at the moment none of them are making none of them you know look i mean go and look at their accounts Don't, none of them are making profits yeah. none of them are, are rolling around in cash they're they're all investing masses of capital up front for a market that is really yet to develop at scale you know and utilization rates are still very low you know, we're probably still looking at like between five and ten percent average utilization across most public charge points. You know, we're not at we're not at like saturation point anywhere near it, and like that. So there's there's a big challenge for those operators still to come. And it must be it must be like like our power usage at home, of which I would love smart rates for the entire day, every half an hour. I would love it to change as demand changed, and then you yeah. could literally go, nah. Just not, just not doing that for that thirty minute, thirty minute period. But charging must be the same. You set up all this infrastructure, you've got all these charges, and then you know weekends when people are traveling, or early in the morning when people are doing whatever, and then in the evening when they're going back at night, and then the rest of the time, two a.m., nothing is happening. Yeah. So some companies are already doing off peak on peak charging. So some companies, uh, public charging operators, are already offering a peak rate and an off peak rate. 
which nice. is quite binary, right? Just think sand is sort of almost uh, time of use. The future, I think, will be much more dynamic. You know, I, I, I don't doubt that there'll be a future in the years to come where you will go and you know where you see a totem today. Um, you know, the kind of the that's what they call the kind of uh, the big signs where you see the petrol yeah. prices on, right? The totems. So there'll be, I'm sure there'll be totems in future that show you the price per kilowatt hour, and it will change. It might change every half an hour. Actually, it might yeah. it might potentially flicker up and down every half an hour, right? I'm sure there'll be that future because that's where markets are going. You know, we we will ultimately people will switch to half hourly settlements, half hourly billing. You can already get that at home if you're a customer. Yeah. So you can already go to someone like, um, you know, Octopus and their Agile tariff, where you're basically going to pay a different price electricity every half an hour, depending on demand, and you get those 24 hours in advance. So you can basically, and and the smart thing will be, at the moment you might see those rates and and you might make some manual adjustments in your home. Yeah. What we're, you know, what we and others are trying to do is, is automate a lot of that, so that you know whether it's your heating or your EV, is to take tariff information like that and go right. So we know twenty four hours in advance what the tariffs are. We will plug those into our algorithms, work out what you as a customer want to do based on previous behaviour on a Thursday, and we'll we'll charge your hot water tank or your home battery or your car at various times based on the cheapness of those electricity rates every half an hour, based on when it's cheapest to do so. Um, to get the job done for you and you and you won't have to manually, manually intervene that's the kind of dream scenario is where consumers can just kind of live and actually all this stuff gets sort of reconciled in the background through smart tech and algorithms basically that's the um obviously with manual intervention if you want to do that but most people in our view are not going to want to see that long term they'll just want the technology to kind of just work in the background for them that's and that's it. where it should go that's 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 absolutely where i wanted to be like at the moment because i have a an off peak and a peak rate and a charge the ev joint off peak i can't i don't have i can't do the smart thing where it works it out uh because of charger and car and whatever um but i, I generally now at the end of the day just because it, it takes no more effort and i'm like well i might as well do it if i'm going to put the dishwasher on i'll plus like plus three hours or plus yep, six hours or whatever. Yep. so i know it's going to be in the window now i am very ready for the the button that's just like i don't know auto hour or whatever yeah. auto cheapness <laughs> auto yeah. cheapness low cost low cost dishwasher and it's just going to be done by yeah. 8 a.m or 7 a.m or whatever um i, th- I think it's a good way to sort of segue into some of the my energy stuff um so what does my energy specialize in and and then also can you run through some of the sort of consumer side of stuff yeah sure so so my energy is um so it's only about a six-year-old company now six and a half years old now so um it started off, it's founded by uh, two people, so um, Jordan and Lee. So Jordan is our kind of marketing genius and Lee is our engineering genius. Um, and I'd say on that front, actually, it's important, I, you know, having worked for lots of automotive startups and stuff before, is that you often find companies with engineering geniuses behind them with no idea how to market themselves. And you end up with products that yeah. go on the great great waste dump of good ideas because no one knew how to market them. And I think that's what we've, that's almost been our secret sources. We've had the great products and the great ability to market them. Um, so we, we're we really about making people more energy independent. Now, we're not saying everyone should go off-grid because actually everyone being off-grid is a bad thing. We don't want everyone to be off-grid. Yeah. It's, it's good for people to remain connected to the energy system for reasons we can chat in a minute. Um, but we are about making sure people can be more energy independent and take more control over their own energy usage and generation if they can generate themselves. So our first product was, a, was actually a solar diverter. So it basically recognizes when you have surplus solar being generated and it sends it somewhere useful in the home as a, what we call a resistive load something like a hot water tank 
uh, heater and underfloor heating system, for example. Um, so you could be out of work and, and this system will just know that you've got solar panels, you've got some solar being generated rather than sending it back to the grid for a few pence, which is not really worth it these days. It will actually use that somewhere useful in the home. Mm. Um, and, and it will basically displace gas. That's the key thing, right? Is that in most homes, you have a gas boiler, it, it stops you from your gas boiler turning on to heat your home up later because it's already been heated through the solar during the day. Um, that that was good at, reduce, at reducing some of that solar waste and actually making solar more useful. But to then sort of maximize the solar even more, um, the next product in the range was the, was the Zappi, so the REV charger, um, which was the first sort of charger in the world to, to charge exclusively from solar. So a lot of chargers do something called solar matching, where they basically they basically kind of work out what rate you want to charge at, so seven kilowatts. And if there's two kilowatts of solar, they'll top you up with five from the grid. Yeah. Now, that's good because you're getting two kilowatts of solar, so I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But what we can do is we can charge only from solar. So currently, um, if I look at my oh, okay. app, um, so my car is, so I mean, my car is habitually plugged in, um, in a, in, mo- in a mode called EK Plus. So at the moment, I won't show you on here because I'm not sure the camera will pick it up, but I'm getting 3.6 kilowatts of solar um, and 3.3 of that is going into my car. with no. Nice. So I'm not using grid electricity at all at the moment. The house is using 300 watts, so that's probably this microphone, the laptop, yeah. everything else, right? Um, but, but basically, that's the idea, is that we're smartly using that solar energy that would otherwise be going back to the grid um, and not being useful for anyone, really. And we're using it for basically for good for the consumer and reducing their bills. So the holy grail, if you like, is is for us to develop products that allow customers to get to 100% self-consumption where every drop of solar you're generating on your roof, you're using. Now, that's a, as I say, it's a holy grail in the sense that it's probably not quite achievable, but we want people to get as close as possible to that, to that yeah. number, basically, because anything you send back to the grid isn't really worth it anymore, as I say, so it's better to kind of consume it yourself if you can. Um, it doesn't mean that you won't use grid. You might still use grid, but it's basically saying that you're using all the solar, at least. So it might be that solar accounts for 70% of your electricity in the year or 60% or whatever, but you're using all of it, basically. Um, one of the challenges um, with uh, the kind of ecosystem we've set up so far with sort of the solar diverse, the EV charger, et cetera, was that people were still generating energy at points where maybe they weren't there, so they didn't have their car plugged in because the car was at work, and they were still generating excess that, you know, the, the hot water tank was heated, and they were still generating more. So there's big yeah. demand for batteries at home. So the idea of uh, electric vehicle being a storage battery is is fine if the car is there. If the car's not there, then it's not plugged in, and therefore yeah. it can't act as a battery for the house. So home batteries are, um, you know, obviously massive now. They're you know they're growing in the UK, they're growing in Germany, etc. Uh, but we've also got a subsidiary. So um, we've also got a home battery product uh, called Libby, which we can sort of plumb into that ecosystem. So you know, whenever your so whenever your micro generation is is generating, the idea is it could be sending that power somewhere, either to be used now for charging an EV or heating hot water, or or for use later if you're putting it in a battery for use, you know, in peak times rather than relying on the grid. Um, and you can also do things like charge that battery off cheap electricity, like you can charge your car. So the idea is you can you can use it for sort of energy arbitrage basically and sort of soak up cheap electricity and use it in peak times. Um, Obviously, our, our, our technology works if you don't have solar as well. So, you know, plenty of people have a Zappy charger because it's a smart charger. Not, you know, they don't necessarily need to use solar functionality if they can't have solar. Um, people will have the people are already ordering the Libby battery from us to do, as I say, energy arbitrage. So they're saying, well, actually, yeah. I've worked out that say on Octopus Go, I can soak up twenty kilowatt hours a night of cheap energy, and that's more than my daily requirement. So actually, I'm going to order a 
you know, a 10, 15, 20 kilowatt hour battery from you guys and basically use that as like a, a way of basically long-term reducing my energy bills because I'm always going to charge off peak, um, charge that battery off peak. So you don't yeah. have to have solar to do it. But, you know, we do see this tremendous growth in home solar, which which really helps um, reduce people's bills, but also give them, as I say, more energy independence because I think what, you know, what the horrific war in Ukraine has done for a lot of people, and, and this is a, you know, silver lining is a horrible term to use in that in that context, but it's it's woken people up to the idea that energy is very volatile. Whereas I think yeah. it, energy energy prices had been a sort of asleep for a while. I think where you know people have been paid, people probably hadn't been paying much notice to their bills. They'd been they'd been coming in. They'd, they'd been annoyed about paying an energy bill, but it hadn't really been a big issue for them. And suddenly, you know, energy prices basically doubled or tripled for a lot of people in a very short space of time. And people were kind of saying, well, why is this happening? And trying to understand the whole energy system as a result um, and realizing that it's, you know, some of it's built on some pretty fragile foundations. Um, so as I say, there's been this huge drive to push um, people to get their own energy energy generation at home. So domestic solar sales, you know, um, more than doubled last year, almost tripled, and they'll do the same this year, we think. Um, people are also investing in community renewables. So there's companies like Ripple that do community-owned wind farms, there's community-owned yeah. solar farms. So people are also investing in local generation that will do the same thing, but not necessarily on their on their own roof, really. So it's a big, big market. How does that one work? Because I've heard about Ripple. And yeah, you can invest in a local solar farm or whatever, and you get cheap rates because of it. But how does that actually work? Like, how do you get Ulti- cheap rates? So, so ultimately... Um, it's about they effectively end up being a being a, a, a generator, right? So, so you're you're not directly connected to that wind farm. You are you have an energy supplier um, that so so for example, you might you might buy into Ripple. Um, you might be an Octopus Energy customer. So, Octopus Energy is effectively on your meter. They are they are your supplier. Um, but what you're doing by the ownership is basically those kind of credits for. The, the, the generation side are coming to you and offsetting your bill. So you can get to the point where you're effectively, um, you're taking the, the lump of energy that's being generated by the wind turbine in, into your bill instead in, in that mm. sense and sort of offsetting that way. So it doesn't work with every energy supply. You've got to look at the, the energy supplies these companies work with. But that's the kind of model. Um, and I mean, the, you know, the, the energy market is, you know, is, is ripe. It is being shaken up and it is ripe for shake up because it's, it's this big kind of sleepy giant that's been, um, you know, sitting on its, resting on its laurels for far too long. I think, in terms of its, it's a very, in in most cases, it's a highly like uninnovative un- market, right? Yeah. Where companies bluntly like Octopus and so on are shaking it up and are doing things differently. Um, but it's it's, you know, if you think about, someone said to me the other day, if you think about the energy market and say, imagine energy supplies didn't exist, right? Imagine imagine energy was like potatoes, and you someone said, right, you need you want potatoes. What are your options for getting potatoes? Your options are grow them. So you can go into your back garden and grow them if you want. That might be a cheap way to do it, but it only works if you've got a garden. So it's a similar sort of analogy to solar, right? That you can only you can generate your own energy, but only if you have the means to do it. Or you can go to a shop and buy them, I guess. But but again, you know, let's let's maybe not think about that. But if your neighbour's growing potatoes, why don't you buy their potatoes? Because actually they're cheaper than the ones from the shop, probably. So if your neighbour's generating solar, surplus solar, could you not buy it from them? Yeah. You know, so are there future models where so right now I'm exporting. So I'm I'm not exporting as at the moment. But if I was exporting, could I have a setup in future where my exports automatically went to like my neighbour? Not not yeah. as a direct connection, but basically through sort of digital energy infrastructure, energy sort of digital energy data infrastructure. 
could those effectively be exports be almost if I say I want them to go to my neighbor and they're basically they pay me for those at a so they pay more than my solar export rate, which is like four or five P or whatever, 10 P. So they might pay me 20 P per kilowatt hour, which is saving them 20 P a kilowatt hour on what they yeah. pay their energy supply. So there's, it, there's loads of ways we can make energy much more innovative and, um, you know, think about localization of energy much more. But as I said at the moment, it's, you know, it's a, it's a bit of an oligopoly, the energy market. And it's, um, I think it's what, what electric vehicles and heat pumps and electrification is doing generally is it's, it's shaking it up because there's going to be such a dramatic change in the way the energy is produced, consumed, and moved about um, that the market is having to innovate to, to kind of keep up, I guess. Yeah, and it is really it's it's really interesting how all those sort of options for tying in with the EVs or taking it right back to the beginning of our conversation. You could have a charger on if you've got a driveway that's empty, you're out all the yeah. day or whatever. Someone could come in, charge their car, but they could charge it from the solar. You can charge them 25, 30p a kilowatt hour, whatever the hell you want to charge. Yeah. And you're, you know, you basically you're getting it for free-ish. Um, you're not going to use it and you're earning, it's only worth 5p to you or something. So you're gonna, you're earning money out of it. And then yeah. do any of the big, I presume I've learned a little bit about the grid over the last year or so. And, and the more I learn about it, the more I really want to meet someone who's like works on it because it sounds incredibly complicated but if you've got your fast chargers someone set up some fast chargers and if you put a solar farm next to it you can't just go unless one equals one in terms of what you need and what you use and what you produce supply is exactly the same you do have to do something with it so your solar farm has to be connected to the grid and they have to ha- say has to be in balance. That's right. They have yeah. So yeah. that's fine. And then you'll have to get your charges, and then you then go, that's fine. So you can't just put in a bunch of solar for the thirty minutes that you're going to need it because you're generating electricity all the time, and it's it gets complicated, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. So so there has to be a you know you have to basically balance supply and demand all the time. I mean, the, the most dramatic example of that, I guess, in a way, is that. Um, at the moment, we pay a massive amount to turn off renewable generation every year. Yeah, which aiming for net zero seems bizarre, right? That we would pay to turn off wind turbines and, and shut down, basically shut down solar. So it's it's ridiculous that we do it, but we have to do it to balance the grid because you can't have more energy coming into the pipes and wires, as it were, than is than is being taken out of the pipes and wires. Um, so rather than doing that, that's where the idea of kind of flexibility comes in. So. This is why I think there was a there was a report last month from Ofgem saying they think that basically electrification of of you know vehicles, heat pumps, all that sort of stuff, and batteries at home. Um, I think their estimate was it could save the grid about four point seven billion pounds a year by the end of the decade. Now, we we would agree with that. I mean, we haven't done the maths to that figure, but we would agree with that principle, which is that um, by basically you're you're creating a distributed energy infrastructure that's the key rather than at the moment we have a very centralized energy infrastructure with big peaky power plants we have to turn off and on stuff you get this distributed network where you can basically level stuff out more and you can kind of flatten the flatten the curves flatten the flatten the peaks and flatten the troughs out i guess that's the idea so that actually um you can modulate the grid much better um and as i say if you even with the number of home chargers that are out there today if all of those home chargers were um, available for flexibility services, if they were all kind of on on the grid, on you know available on demand at the grid's um, um, requirement, 
if you, let's imagine those were all charging at the same time. If you suddenly had a requirement for a whole bunch more power, um, if you basically could just pause those for an hour, which probably wouldn't affect anyone in the lot, you know, yeah. most of the people would not get affected by that because most people are charging overnight and wouldn't even notice it. That would be that amount of power if you could actually pause them all, um, which you can do as in technically you can do, but if they're all connected and consented in, that would that would equal more power than any single one of the UK's current nuclear reactors, right? Mm. So, so if your options are pull a lever and turn on a nuclear power station, or turn off low EV chargers, yeah. Well, well, actually, at the moment, it's turn on a coal coal power plant, which is even worse, right? Or turn on turn off low EV chargers. Let's turn off the EV chargers because one paying paying incentivizing one you probably won't have to incentivize people massively to do that because the inconvenience factor is so low, actually long-term consumers may not even need specific incentives to do that. They might need an incentive to opt into the program, as it were, the system, but they may not need specific incentives for every single tiny event yeah. you run. But you don't have to turn on a dirty coal power plant and you certainly have to pay to turn it on, which is even more worrisome, right? So actually, it's that's why it's going to save money and save energy in the long term because you're basically just using the grid sensibly to balance it out rather than rather than having to invest in new power generation. Yeah. So all this stuff about people saying, oh, we're going to need 20 new nuclear power stations to power, <laughs> it's, all, it's all total garbage. It's all total rubbish. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the figures I love the most is that, um, you know, in terms of energy saving, I guess, not, not so much flexibility, is that we, um, since 2005, so between 2005 and 2020, um, in that 15-year period, we reduced electricity consumption, annual electricity consumption in the UK, by 77 gigawatt hours, right? So that's 77 million kilowatt hours, I think. I'm trying to that out. Um, so 77 gigawatt hours, right? Um, hang on. No, I'm completely wrong. 77 terawatt hours, so billion kilowatt hours. That's better. So we reduced it by 77 terawatt hours per year um, of electricity. And that was almost... Not solely, but majority of that was driven by LED light bulbs because we did a big switch to LED light bulbs, which are massively right, yeah. more efficient. Right? Um, and again, really easy. No consumer. I mean, the initial investment, fine. But does anyone notice they've got LEDs now over halogens? No, most people think they're nicer. Um, so because we did that, we reduced that amount of energy per year. And if you fast forward to 2050 and look at the, the Climate Change Committee's projection on what, we'll, what we will need to power all of the electric vehicles in the UK, the kind of midpoint of the estimates is about 75, 70, it's about yeah. 75 to 80 terawatt hours per year. So everyone says, oh my God, Tom, we'll need so much electricity to power all these EVs. I go, well, yeah, it's a lot, but it's about the same amount that we've already reduced consumption by in the last 15 years. And if you think about all the sectors that are growing, EVs are not the sector that's going to need the most electricity growth from now until 2050. Yeah. It's going to be stuff like industry. It's going to be stuff like electrifying electrifying steel making and stuff like that that's where the yeah. the big challenge is going to come from yeah and and you look at sort of electricity consumption people look at it as like just a number but it's not it's it's that time curve that we're talking about and you just have to have the capacity in the grid to to be able to match that peak so yeah. if you're charging at any time less than peak it doesn't matter like it doesn't matter like it literally if you're using more electricity at any time less than the, that peak part of the day You've got the capacity. Yeah. So there's plenty, if you look at it as like a, you know, sort of sunrise curve, sort of, which fits quite well with various stuff. Outside of that, 
there's plenty of space for more capacity. And and the idea, like you said, of, of, of plugging stuff in, it can work one way where you can turn off your charges and they don't charge. But actually what we'll probably have is it can work the other way. You can pull power out of the charges. You can pull power out of your car and you'll get paid for it. Or yeah. if there's oversupply, we've got this crazy amount of wind and no one's using it, you can dump it into the car and the, ne- and the price for electricity goes negative, you get paid. Yeah. Or, or even better, you end up with, you know, and, and, or you end up doing effectively, um, you do like battery to grid using home batteries right, rather than the yeah. car. Because um, actually, again, you've got the issue of the car is only a useful battery if it's plugged in. So you've got to have that yeah. reliance. And, and actually, some people might have theirs plugged in quite habitually for things like solar generation. But actually, if you don't, then then your car is, is a sort of a stranded asset on the driveway, as it were. But the home battery is there, right? Is there to yeah. be to, to to help? Um, but yeah, I mean, people massively underestimate. I think that that importance of having that distributed network of, of energy infrastructure, um, and as long as it can all communicate and talk to each other, it, it won't be this threat, you know, um, that people think it will be. Um, but it's you know, it's and all the other all the other options on the table are far more energy intensive anyway. So again, if you're interested in, you know, someone's interested in energy. Consu- energy kind of consumption energy draw or concerned about it you know if you want to go down the route of hydrogen for anything for heating for cars for anything if you want to go down the road of synthetic fuels then you're going to need maybe four or five times the amount of electricity to produce yeah. those things in the equivalent quantity so so you know electricity electric vehicles at least are um you know or you know appear to be the best case from an efficiency point of view as well um because we can't you know Although renewable power is renewable, it's not. It's not. Um, it's not. Uh, uh, it's not sufficiently abundant to be to just add more of it. It, it doesn't. It literally doesn't. Well, it, it it grows trees. It doesn't grow on trees. But you know, it doesn't. It doesn't basically become available at the flick of a switch. So actually, we we should still care about energy efficiency. So someone said to me, you know, well, um, it does. The fact that hydrogen cars need four or five times as much electricity per mile to run them doesn't matter because renewables can deliver all of that. And you think, well. No, but then we're saying we're going to invest five times more renewables than we really might need. Why would we yeah. do that? What, what's the what's the virtue of doing that? You know, so we need to be we need to build the system in the right way in the right size. Um, and one of the things that distribution networks talk about a lot is is the right sizing of the network. They don't want to, and you you always hear this term from a distribution network is they don't want to overinvest in the pipes and wires, right? They don't want to overinvest yeah. in um, in the pipes and wires in their area. So rather than putting massive new cabling in, they would rather you will opted into flexibility services for your devices. That's what they would rather happen. And, and I guess in some ways that's good and the right thing to do. Um, but there's got to be a balance between there needs to be the investment in, in, in the pipes and wires, um, but we also need to incentivize consumers to, to participate in the, in the grid as well. And I think a lot of people will do that because it would just make sense, bluntly. Yeah. it's it's As a sort of techie person, I, I love the concept of generating my own power and then having it like, get managed really well, going into the car, doing all the stuff, whatever. And I'm still going to have a sports car. I'm still yeah. going to create loud noises. But that's most of the time, I probably won't be. Like, and it's about, it's going back to that pie chart, right? It's the, it, what, what fraction of the pie chart of road transport emissions comes from classic cars, comes from people taking the car down to Goodwood on a Saturday? Yeah. Fraction, fraction. Fra- and actually, you know, the solutions to that may appear may yeah that if if we're gonna if we're gonna go down the road of things like synthetic fuels you know let's let's do it for converting you know i don't know e-types or f40s to run on that rather than 
unleaded maybe i don't know but but you know i don't if we want you know we're talking about net zero still at the moment we're not talking about absolute zero so um it may be possible and i expect it will be possible for quite some time to carry on driving internal combustion engines um but only if you decarbonize all the boring stuff first and that's sort of always yeah. what i've advocated is basically if you if you're a passionate car enthusiast you should actually proactively want to decarbonize and electrify all of the two litre diesel boring boxes out there um so you can carry on driving your morgan aero coupe in my case or whatever like you know you want to i don't own one but i want to own but you know you, you can carry on driving the nice car because actually you've 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 got enough in the carbon budget to do that but at yeah. the moment we we won't have enough in the carbon budget to do that um unless we decarbonize all the boring run-of-the-mill stuff first basically that's the that's the kind of argument i've always used from a if you want to call it a petrol analogy it's basically um you know would you rather the last drop of petrol was used for someone driving to work or someone driving around the track at Goodwood? I don't know. Yeah. 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 There's, there are so, so many topics to cover in this, this, this large space. So I'm going to sort of dial, dial back and hear, hear a slight pause on cruising more. And I've, I've got some, like, I do five questions at the end of every podcast and, and we'll do them, but I've got a funny one um that I, I came across the other day and it was a it was a story a headline from some rubbish newspaper or whatever and it's like our car parks are going to get crushed by the weight of all these evs <laughs> that makes me laugh that one yeah I, I i saw that one too um and actually the i think the key thing was that they um the they hadn't even looked at the spec there's basically a building spec for the weight per square meter of car parks yeah. that they weren't even considering, which is already like sufficient for an electric car. And I think the, the the weird the weird basis of their argument appeared to be that um, electric cars are heavier than a 1960s Ford Cortina. Yes, <laughs> ignoring the fact that that any internal combustion engine car is also heavier than a 1960s Ford Cortina and have coped perfectly well. So, yeah, I love I love the fact that we've we've managed to switch to you know lots of people having like two ton SUVs. And no one ever questioned them no. driving around car parks. And yet suddenly, because they're electric, so suddenly a concern about electric vehicles. Um, yeah, no, it's, that's, it, it, bluntly, it's a garbage story. I mean, it's a garbage story and it's it's hyperbole. Um, and actually the quote from the guy who did the report even sort of said, well, I don't even know if this is a problem, but we should certainly be thinking about it. And I'm a bit, I'm a bit worried. Um, <laughs> there, there are some legitimate things we need to think about with um EVs and and things like car parts and boring stuff like um, there's some fire brigade precautions that mean you can't put them too yep. far down in like a really underground car park. But there's that all those stuff can be solved, right? Um, yeah, it's there's a lot of junk stories out there. <laughs> there. There are, there are, yeah. And actually, yeah, there's. I'm I'm, I'm just going to avoid going now because I I think I've probably got about another four hours worth of topics to discuss on <laughs> EVs and whatever. Um, so five questions. What is? Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? Oh, um, I. To be fair, my most memorable driving trip was actually in a, in an RV in New Zealand with my wife. We right. drove around North and South Islands in in a, in a big RV. So the vehicle wasn't particularly <laughs> special, but the uh, the experience of of driving around was was very good and actually great example of something that probably could have been electric because actually if there was electric at all the campsites we went to which of course there was for hookups yeah. if there's a lot of electric to charge we could have had an electric rv and done that trip just as well that would be a i i would love 
something. I don't know. I don't know whether it exists yet. Like a little van or uh, ID buzz type vehicle as my podcast studio that I can drive somewhere. Do a podcast on on location. On location, but in a setup. And the EV-ness, you've got all the plugs, you've got all the stuff, you've got all the power demands. Like, no problem. I I would really love that. Just so I hope a manufacturer is listening to this podcast and thinks that would be a cool PR thing to do. Yes, exactly. There's various (laughs) one-offs created for various press releases like, a one-off barbecue thing or a one-off DJ booth or something. Maybe a podcast studio. Is I think an, I, an ID buzz, but like maybe the next, next gen. I want to do, a, I want it to go a bit further, a little bit further. But, um, for my, actually, you know, you presumably podcast gear, that's not going to use cameras and whatnot. That's tiny, tiny of amounts watts. of power. Yeah. Hundreds of watts. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think your, your, your journey in that camper van, it kind of sums up that question. I think for a lot of people, really, it's 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 never really about the car. Like, it, it, it can be about the car. But it's it's always about where you are, who you're with, what you're doing, what yeah. you're seeing. Like, nobody's ever had a memorable journey in a really nice car driving through, like, Pimlico, I suspect, or something. Like, no. it's just location matters Unless as they well. they get robbed. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, in an ICE, uh I, I had a very nice week with a Morgan Coupe. Didn't do anything necessarily. Nice. I mean, yeah, I like Ping David to Morgan and stuff in it. Did Brecon Beacons in my old Audi TT. That was that was fun. Like that was a nice. Again, it's it's like it's the where it's the experience, right? It's actually combined experience. Yeah. It's not just the just the set of wheels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, if you could only drive, I don't know how to frame this one because I know. We, well, I'll give you the question of how I say it to everyone else. If you can only drive one car for the rest of your life. And you're allowed like a, I'm going to add inflation, 600 pounds, 700 pounds, sort of banger on the side. What would it be? I mean, I'm going to cop out and say, in a way, I, I do I do love the I-Pace and I'd, I'd be happy to carry on with it. I, th- I think I'd, the Taycan's too tempting though. Mm. I think I'd go for a Taycan Sport Turismo and I'd have to convince my wife that the boot was big enough for those one trip, <laughs> those one trip a year things you mentioned earlier. You could get a... I know I've got a friend who's got a Taycan. He's, where he's got nice, two. nice sleek um, roof box for holidays. He's got, he's got a roof yeah. box. Yeah. Um, that's, that's another car. That's another one I look at. I love the car. I'm just, I'm like, yeah, but what's like, I, we know that the tech's going to change so soon. Then these, these things are evolving so much that unless it's like, if they're 40, 50 grand, which who knows at the end of the year, they might be, I think I'll have a Taycan. <laughs> There's, yeah, I'd wait. I mean, I think if you're going to buy used, maybe wait a bit. I think, I think, I don't, I think we've made that step up to sort of 800 volt architecture and like, you know, 253 and kilowatt charge. I don't think we're going to see any, you know, I don't think we're going to see any cars doing like megawatt charging. I don't think we're going to see a massive step change in, in battery tech or charging right. speeds from that level of car. I think if you were, if you were buying sort of a, what I would call a first gen sort of 400 volt EV product, then yeah, maybe look at the, at the newer stuff. But I think we've, We've probably made the step that's going to be the step till 2030 or beyond now. Yeah, but we do see, if you look at most manufacturers, and I don't know how this will, this will ramp, you, we're getting sort of 5 five to 10%-ish range increases mm. each year. Although, again, on paper, is it real? I don't know. On paper, yeah, 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 exactly. Are you measuring it differently? There's a lot of jiggery-pokery um, on the WLTP, I think. that's the, that's the. the. I've seen a lot of people who bluntly end up buying cars as I say, my rule of something stays the same of like three to four miles per kilowatt hour 
three to four miles per usable kilowatt hour of the battery pack. So make sure that you know what the usable yeah. kilowatt hours of your pack are. Um, in some cases, like the key is, it's, it's the, the size they state is the usable pack. So 64 kilowatt hours is 64 kilowatt hours. Um, the battery is actually a bit bigger, but they don't tell you that, which is, I think, the best way to do it is tell the consumer the usable bit. Um, I think, you know, use that metric and probably all EVs are about the same at the moment. I, I think a lot of the manufacturer claims about, I mean, there was an EV the other day, I won't say the manufacturer again, but if you worked it out, it was over six miles per kilowatt hour on, you know, to get the range they stated. No, no one's no, getting no one's doing regularly, that. apart from people absolutely hypermiling it, no one is getting six miles per hour as, as an average figure. It's just not happening. That's it. And you see, I see various cars come out and people say, oh, they're, you know, that one's really efficient. And then they say something like, oh, yeah, it's going to get five to six. Yeah. And you go, the only EV I've ever driven that would be car. a reliable six miles per kilowatt hour or more, actually, more like nine, is a Renault Twizy, <laughs> <laughs> which I would happily have, which I, yeah, which fair enough. I've nearly bought one many times. So I really, I really will buy one one day. My what wife's you like, you'll. Yeah, yeah. What do you think Twizy. is the most un, undervalued car at the moment? Is it a Twizy? Um, I think I, I, I seriously, I think the Twizy is well ahead of its time. Um, I, re, I I've driven the Ami. I really like the Ami as a concept. There's loads of cool stuff about it that I think is really yeah is properly well properly forward looking in a in a general sense about manufacturing and and usage and in life usage and stuff where you know the body panels are the same and all this sort of stuff so the front and the back are the same the doors are the same. there's really clever stuff like that i just wish it could go a bit faster and i don't mean from yeah. a speed point of view I, it, that the 30 mile hour limiter is because it's like a it's like a i can't remember what it is it's a 7 or 8 horsepower car versus about 18 in the twizy and that is the difference like i know it yeah. sounds stupid in the world of 600 horsepower evs but that little 10 horsepower I mean, difference means is, a lot. it means a lot in a car that size and it's the you know i commuted from kent to london quite happily for a week in a twizy years ago um, <laughs> and i was doing the a20 at you know 50 miles an hour 55 miles an hour. it's fine like genuinely it was wasn't a problem you couldn't do that on an ami so an ami would be a very short leash car if you could only, if you were literally driving around London all day, it would be fine. It would be great. Um, and as I say, the interior is a bit more usable than a Twizy. But um, I would have a Twizy over an Ami because it can go that bit faster and it can do 50 yeah. mile an hour. 50 mile an hour. Um, I think if you had something in that segment of ultra light, no frills, 50 mile an hour capable, um, you know, 40 miles on a charge, 30 miles on a charge, that's the really interesting proposition for, for urban mobility. Um, yeah, I'm a, I, I actually think one of the most undervalued cars out there as an EV proposition for, for kind of a daily is probably the, the old iMeve, Mitsubishi iMeve, Citroen C0, Peugeot Ion triplet, which are all the same. The difference as a nerd is that the iMeve has a few different driving modes you can exploit, okay. whereas the others have this weird little gearbox cover that stops you getting into those modes. Um, What's it called? The so the so the Mitsubishi iMeve, so I M E I I M I E V, um, and then uh, Citroen right, yeah. and Peugeot had the same vehicle underneath. They rebodied it, so they rebadged it. One was called C Zero, and one was called the Ion, which I think should have been called the Lion, as in lithium ion. No one. Um, they're not pretty cars, I think it's fair to say, but um, nice. they will do a genuine. I mean, they've got about a sixteen kilowatt battery pack, very efficient. They'll happily do, at, at launch, they were doing sort of 70, 80 miles of range. They'd probably do 50, 60, 50 odd miles of range now. But you can pick one of those up for four grand. 
and yeah. and it has DC charging, so you get DC Chatterjee rapid charging on it. So it's actually you could do, you know, I could nip up to Luton from where I live, charge in twenty minutes, and come home again. Like that's yeah. that's an interesting little car that most people probably wouldn't buy on its looks, but actually from a financial point of view, for a few, a few literally a few grand is yeah. probably the most underrated EV on the market in the used market anyway. Yeah, okay. What's the most interesting car to you at the moment? Um, really good question. Can I say one that hasn't been launched yet? Yeah. Citroen Ollie. Citroen, ah, the concept thing. The Ollie, yeah. That's that's really interesting to me. Again, I, I like, it's basically taking what they've, it's taking the kind of like whole life thinking behind the Ami and yeah. like upsizing it to a, to a bigger vehicle. I, I really like, I like manufacturers that are thinking about the way that cars are manufactured mm. and designed, not just the performance. That's, that's, that's interesting to me. As I say, I'm not a, going back to the whole, I'm not a petrohead thing. I'm more about motor industry and the product. I think that's really interesting. It is, is that is the, the lengths they've gone to in that to make, you know, it's got this stupid vertical windscreen, but like it's actually, it's way easier to make. It's way yeah. less glass, less weight, yeah. whatever, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Like with the Ami where it was like, it's the same front as the back. Like the, you're just making one part. and it's just thoughtful. It like, sides, it's so. thoughtful design and manufacturing, I think is important now because we, we can't just focus on how the car is being propelled. We've got to think about life cycle. I mean, people yeah. like Polestar are also doing amazing work in this space, just really honest, transparent work on life cycle analysis, which I think is really valuable. And again, I wish more people would do it. Um, so yeah, I think Polestar is sort of worth a, worth a mention there in terms of what they're focusing on from a cradle to grave approach as well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see more of these things. And it's, it's, it's refreshing to see design, nice design solutions where some, you go, okay, they've done something clever there. It's not just the same box with yeah. the same stuff. You know, they've moved it around. Um, it's like, what's the, what is the most, I don't know, it's kind of almost saying, like the, it's again, it's mini, like the TCV, like what is the, where, where is the last icon in that sense of like, yeah. and by icon, I mean in terms of really thinking about the need behind the vehicle and designing it for need rather than just, design sake if that makes sense yeah. you know um i can't really think of one recently i things that pop into my head are i feel like someone talked about this and therefore i remember it things like the i3 were very interesting when they yeah. came out um some of the dacias thatches the the like duster and stuff like that yeah the way they've approached the design is very much like we're here to make a cheap car what do we need what do we not shamedly yeah and like let's just kind of make it fun um, that's a good point but, but looking at from a i don't know as you go up i think things like the, the gordon murray i don't know about the t50 but the, let's just say something like that it's it's a road car they're designing a road car it's not necessarily done anything different so it's not super edgy but most manufacturers are not designing a road car anymore they're in yeah. that space they're designing some sort of track monster thing yeah and Basically, has the, the car been designed by the marketing department or not? Is I guess the yeah yeah <laughs> my slightly cynical question is like <laughs> yeah Did have they gone? What can we sell? What do we think we can sell? What do people? What are people interested in? Numbers, right? What are the biggest numbers? So therefore, we can add the biggest price. That's yeah. something. And right. it's a bit like it's the old. 
I can't remember. Was it an Ogilvy quote? David, Ogilvy? I can't remember who said it, but it's the whole thing about consumers don't actually know what they want, right? I'm Everyone says, oh, you know, the customer's always right. You know, we'll, we'll design to what customers are asking for. Actually, that's la- that, a lot of the time that's rubbish. They, people don't know yeah. what they want. And if you, and uh, it's that, and uh, the i3 is a good shout. It's sort of like, let's bring something to market, which people aren't screaming for, but I think we can educate them about why they need it and why they want it or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I'm interested in whoever's doing the next one of those things, basically. That, that ethos. The i3 ethos, but to a car now of yeah. a similar sort of size. If BMW relaunched the i3, but version two, like now, I think it would be awesome. Yeah, like, i3, in, I reckon i3, almost e-nero sized, like X1 sized or something. But basically, I'd need a little bit of bigger boot and I need doors to open in a kid-friendly way. Because yeah. I basically, car, my issue is like car park, Apparently, you know, you've gone to a yeah. bay in a car park. You've got this much space between you and the next car. Sorry, that much space. You open yeah. the front door, then you have to open the rear door. How, how do you get like? How do you get a child? You can't get. So I was like, I can't. I can't understand how you make that work. And I, I know people. I know friends who have had them with kids, and like, oh, they're fine. They're fine. It works easily. I'm like, I don't understand how. <laughs> I just don't understand the physics of it. The, but the I'd, one lo- I'd, love one. I'd love one. Is like sliding doors. If if you're in that yeah. situation, you need sliding doors, and then you, you the have Peugeot one zero zero seven or whatever it was. <laughs> or like a Ventador or something. Yeah. <laughs> Twizzy doors, there you go. Twizzy um, doors, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, final question. Five-car garage, unlimited budget. Got to fit into your life-ish, whatever. Off you go. Unlimited budget, uh, budget even. Um, okay, McLaren F1, mm. GTR, um, Morgan Aero Coupe, nice. Twizzy. Actually, Twizzy F1. I'd have an Oakley designed Twizzy <laughs> F1 edition. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. One of those five. They're, they're nice. Um, Taycan Sport Turismo. Yeah. Which one? Taycan Sport, uh, Sport Turismo, not the Cross Turismo. Yeah, I don't yeah, need yeah, all but, the. But which? which oh, one? Uh, uh, I think I'd go for like a 4S, maybe. Yeah, I think so. I don't think, or maybe a GTS. I, don't, I wouldn't go turbo, insane turbo S. I don't think I'd need it. I'd go 4S, I reckon. A classic? Maybe, no, yeah. You've sort of got modern. I need, I need, yeah, I just don't know. I, I don't want to be boring and say like an E-type. Right, what's your daily in this situation? Well, I can't... Well, the Taycan. The Taycan's no, a daily. The Taycan. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you know what? I'd, 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 I'm not... Look, I've got a McLaren F1 GTR in there and an Aero Coupe, so I'm not an EV absolutist. But do you know what? Actually, I think I'd have to get um, an original Tesla Roadster. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I drove one of those really early on, and actually I still they're they're mega money now, annoyingly. But um, I know one who I know someone who bought one for about fifty grand. Who I reckon he could sell it for four times as much now if he wanted to. Wow! But, yeah, yeah. So that's not a classic, but it's it's a bit of a it's also in the like world. It is, and it's it was you know a car that Elon Musk made became before he became too weird as well. Which yeah, is quite like. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. There's a bit of Lotus in there as well, I guess, in a way, in terms of their help. But yeah, so I, I so what's that? Three EVs and two ICEs. That's not too bad. That's all right. Cool. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. I hope the listeners got got some some juicy info on that. I think we had it's, it's, it's such there's so many topics to go down and discuss in this space um, and and dive into and what lots of rabbit but, holes, and lots of yeah. lots of lots of arguments, <laughs> debates, and and stuff as well, which is. Yeah. kind of what I like because there's there's no a lot of the 
you know, I'm not an absolutist, as I say, and there's a lot of there's a lot of nuance people don't often explore. Exactly. So, and and to explore nuance, you have to have time. And stuff like 140 characters or 280 characters on Twitter is not is not a good way to explore nuance. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> so, no. which I often fail to do. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks very much. No problem. Thanks, Sam. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.